Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again, and now on to the story. First Contact Chapter 61 Cock Captain's Personal Log Stardate 8532.299 Arrived at Starbase 4973 with the Dakota and our crew turned over information to the local Starfleet representative as well as Sud's data for the other ship's crews. Spoke to Commodore Dunstan of Starfleet, who requested a template for what the changes the Dakota had undergone. Was counseled that my point totals would not count towards any ladder rankings due to the extreme non-canon changes to the Dakota, as well as my crew personnel armaments and shuttle modifications. In shocking news, the Battle Starfleet and the Cylon Collective have arrived. Talk about big guns. Those guys carry big creation engines that can pump out a Viper or Cylon fighters in roughly 10 seconds, with only 30 second cooldown slushdown features. Met with the Space Force representative and turned over my battle logs, he, in particular, wanted the in-depth scans we performed on the various precursor ships. Our practice of boarding the ships is, at this time, the most common strategy. We discussed the fact that the Space Force considered forcing the precursor vessels out of system to be a paraic victory, and that the system will require a heavy metal posting. Was also informed that the fact that the precursor fleet retreated from the planets and then from the system was a statistical oddity, and he wanted more scans. He also inquired as to whether or not I ran an in-depth scan on the gas giants, which is where the Goliaths were spawning from. I regret that I had not merely a scan for the Goliath. He appeared quite concerned with the actions undertaken, but did congratulate me on defending the system. Transphasic photon torpedoes are considered standard armaments for all Starfleet vessels from here on out. This is talk of smaller planet crackers being put to use amongst the crew, but planet crackers rely on mantle of the core to interaction. Quantum torpedoes are nothing option that I am seriously considering. Phasing plasma torpedoes are largely considered to be up-class when weaponry, but I am seriously considered just loading everything up and going for broke. Tri-cobalt missiles might be another option, but the last time anyone used them was during the Fifth Dominion War. The Dakota is so far out of specifications that mounting such weapons is not as far-fetched as it may have sounded a month ago. It isn't like anything else we're going to do is going to count for the leadership boards. On a personal note, some of my crew members have reported headaches from the Suds interfaces. McCoy is working on it, but he also warned that the transporters may be the reconfiguring after the discovery that the precursors can hijack the signal and capture crew members that way. Starfleet transporters are much more carefully aligned than the earlier Mattrans or teleporter systems used by the 40k LARPers. Safety interlocks prevent our transporters from being used in many cases that a teleporter could be used, require more power, and have triple feedback redundancy checks. An amusing point, teleporter systems seem to go straight through the shields. McCoy and Spock both believe that the lengthened amount of time for the buffer checking allows the precursor shielding to be adjusted for an algorithm used by Starfleet vessels. Another amusing point, 
During my LFG call, the Wesleys were lined up all around the station core. Nobody is taking them on these, despite the class advantages, because outside the structured missions of Starfleet games, nobody is going to suddenly have Wesley weaknesses just because. On a personal note, my Riker has grown out of his beard and has been socializing with his Space Force peers in order to get us more information on the street. Picard 8873 Captain's personal log, stardate 8532.304. One thing I don't mention when the sheer amount of time that you spend moving from place to place. Warp drive is highly efficient and safe compared to string drive, slipstream gates, and jump space. Unlike hyperspace, AIs are able to remain conscious in warp. Still, I feel the urge to yell, Go faster! at the warp nacelles. My Spock took me to the side and warned me that Starfleet vessels may be breaking serious mistake. Often, the precursors take damage and flee the system, using hull space to jump out. He has noticed that after roughly 8% of their structure is damaged, they then flee. He also had checked the Starfleet records. I'm the only vessel at this time running transphasic photon torpedoes. He has suggested an experiment. Utilize transphasic torpedoes, phase plasma torpedoes, but leave one out of every barrage of ten with the phased plasma torpedoes, with a subspace beacon. In that manner, we can discover where they are running off to. My Spark has put forward the theory, and my Scotty and LaForge, as well as my Riker, all agree. They are refitting, repairing, and constructing bases somewhere. Perhaps I'll plan to put the phasic subspace beacon aboard one of the larger vessels will pan out. I do not feel concerned about what my crew might find in the precursor shipyard. Picard 8873 Captain's personal log stardate 8532.305 We have returned to the system that myself and others had cleared. In particular, we are running long-range sensor scans on the gas giants. My checkup has suggested, and I concur, that getting in close and running more detailed but shorter-range scans might put us too close. I would really like to avoid a barrage of NCV shells. Our Hura, she's extremely qualified and did not object to me double-checking her bona fides, is keeping a careful ear out for precursor transmissions. I have left orders that the faintest whisper of precursor code the coder is to move to red alert. The systems look empty. But there is something that makes me only think there are four lights. Picard 8873. Addendum. There is apparently no structures or other masses in the gas giant at the depths of our long-range passive scanners can reach. Captain's personal log, stardate 8532.307. Our Hura spotted at first a subspace whisper, a complex and shifting binary, barely audible. Well, others suggested we move in, trying to get a lock-in on what was whispering across subspace in such a manner. I ordered the ship to immediately go to silent running. No emissions. We observed a Goliath exit hullspace near the larger gas giant, streaming vapor and metal, its attendant vessels exiting with it. As we watched, it allowed the attendant vessels to bore through the massive docking ports. Side note. Some of those bays are the size of the real San Francisco Ultraplex. The whispers picked up on the massive Goliath sank into the gas giant. My crews estimate that the three initially engaged Goliaths on our last action had been repaired themselves was confirmation bias. For a bare moment, the whisper got louder, and the Goliath that had sunk into the gas giant was in plain view of the massive long-range scanners, then simply vanished. 
The belief of my Spark and Scotty is that the precursors have some kind of shielded reefed structure inside the gas giant beyond the scanner horizon. The Forge has stated that the pressure at such a depth would make any construction and repairs inordinately difficult. My Riker reminded the Forge that precursors were engaged in a war where they vanished and these bases are not only wartime bases, but that there are no living crews to worry about. I ordered my crew to remain on silent running. There is enough debris on the planet to cover a probe approach. Mother Forge has suggested putting the probe data relay in the Oort cloud to give the signals to a few bouncers and use only phasic tachyon streams to reverse polarity. Sometimes I wish we didn't have all our own names for technology. Why could we have just said paired quark communications? Picard 8873 Captain's Personal Log, Stardate 8532.309 the probe has moved into place carefully, following a piece of debris from the previous battle. During this time, Awahura caught another scrap of what she has come to call as precursor whispers from the other gas giant. My spark reminded me that the intense pressure inside the massive gas giant could make foundry work easier, allowing the creation of hyperalloys that we need massive foundries to utilize the inherent pressure of the massive gas giant to create alloy farms inside the gas giant. Another ship has arrived, which I have labeled as an Enki-class precursor, has arrived and taken into the carefully going over the debris field and the Starfleet battle. Thankfully, the Klanon and Romulan officers routinely utilize antimatter charges to clear any debris from the destruction of our ships. It moved the wreckage and mining ship and has been spending time there. It is an extreme range and I am becoming nervous about what it is doing. The precursor attitudes within the star system are concerning. Have you ever looked into an inanimate machine with no living characterizations like a data processes and thought to yourself, what are you up to? As you watched it, I have that unique experience. They are up to something. Picard 8873 Captain's Personal Log, Stardate 8532.310 The probe provided us with a valuable information that is critical to disseminate. We are now, to use my Riker's phrase, running like a bat out of hell. Passive scans can only penetrate to a certain depth within the gas giant. Starfleet has been largely worried about planetary scans as well as deep space and intrasystem scans. Combine it with the fact that we use a lot of gamification in our systems. Gas giants were largely used as spawn points for crafts. This meant that, naturally, our scanners largely could not penetrate deeply into gas giants. My Scotty and LaForge recalibrated the sensor arrays to get a good look inside the gas giant. My Spock was right. The precursors were growing large alloy fields down there. There was some repair and manufacturing base the size of a continent down inside the gas giant with massive alloy farms around it. Before the scale would have shocked me until my Spock pointed out that the great eye of Jupiter is twice the size of Terra itself. Nearly two dozen precursor vessels were docked at the facility. Discussions on how to deal with it, this massive repair and refit base was discussed at closed meetings among command crew. It ranged from using a Genesis device on the gas giant, not recommended, my LaForge stated that the precursor ships were facing here are more adept at learning than previously encountered precursor types, and the last thing we should do is provide them with panicillas that create more resources to attempting to use a modified planet cracker on the gas giant, again tabled due to concerns a precursor would imitate it. 
We settled on phasic transphasic photon torpedoes mixed in with trike bolt missiles. Our attack was dual. Destroy the debris field of the Romulus class mining vessel, which was being thoroughly combed over by the Enki class precursor vessels. Damage or perhaps even destroy the facility and the alloy farms inside the gas giant. We came in from above the stellar plane at high velocity angle. When facing precursor vessels, your speed and maneuverability are key to staying alive. We fired probes while still 25 million miles away from the stellar plane. We came in with the only debris shields at full power. The probes reported back that while there were life signs on the planets, the green and amber zones, the precursor vessels around those planets and upon the surface were not engaged in wholesale slaughter or destruction. We practically turned the centers inside out, getting deep scans of everything. Once in range, Starfleet weaponry is somewhat, to use my Riker's term, short-legged compared to Space Force line weaponry. I ordered full scans at maximum power and resolution. Normally, this is avoided to prevent damage to sentient beings and xeno species, but the precursors aren't a foe that one should concern themselves with scanner burn. Precursor vessels were not rising from the grass giants, while some immediately launched or moved to engage us from various points in the system, near distance and geometry prevented any attacks. At 30 million miles, even NCV weapons and phaser beams moved too slowly to engage a ship that size of the Dakota. We launched weapons and immediately began accelerating to be able to put enough distance between any precursor vehicles and our own vessel. We got our scan data back and immediately realized that engaging the precursor vessels was now secondary, if not tertiary mission. All four of the gas giants contained refit facilities of the size that best described as geological. That was not the key data. Our Hura was able to isolate the precursor whisper, and while unable to decode it, was able to confirm what it was. FTL data streams, their battle strategic and tactical network. The planets, while full of life and processing several different species known as unified civilized races, were all set Stone Age technology. Precursor vessels were moving to protect the planets and their inhabitants for unknown reasons. This information was vital to Starfleet, Space Force, and all other Confederacy organizations. Picard 8873 Captain Slog, Stardate 85322.311 Dakota has now had its very own Abrams Khan moment. We were fired on in warp drive. The precursor vessel mounted one of the Galaxy-class Starfleet vessel engines and pursued us. With a lighter frame, the lighter energy output, and not having to concern itself with warp drive effects on living beings, it was not only able to catch us up, but fire upon us. Iraika has stated that anyone who mocks us for having such thick armor after this will be starting a brawl. We are alive only because of my insistence on heavy armor, structural integrity fields running the same type of shield frequency algorithms as our main deflector shields, with dual structural fields layered between armor and structural layers. Immediately upon being fired upon, we dropped out of warp drive to engage in smaller precursor vessel. Chekhov stated that it would be between stellar bodies and it should have been bare battlefield with not even a gas whispers. Instead, we dropped into half a dozen Jotun-class vessels waiting for us. We are currently undergoing evasive warp maneuvers, as estimated by my Spock and my LaForge. Picard 8873 Captain's Personal Log, Stardate 8532.313 They're attempting to drive us deeper into the dead zone. This gives us a fairly unusual opportunity. 
We can see where they are trying to push us or we can attempt to escape. Spock and Scotty believe that it is imperative that we discover what it is that the Precursors believe can take us out compared to the Jotuns following us. Riker and the Forge maintain our goal should be reaching Federation Confederate space. I believe that I have a better idea. Picard 883 Captain's Log, Stardate 8532.315 Rather than allow us to be pushed further into the dead zone, I order the ship to move at the right angle to the galactic plane at full warp 9.3. While this can interfere with suds, uploads, and storage, I've decided that the risk is necessary. Captain's Log, Stardate 8532.317 The Precoast machines are still in close pursuit. They are arranging for an attempted ambush. LaForge has theorized that the one following us, which the warp-capable photon torpedo launcher welded onto the Galaxy-class engine and wrapped in a neutronium armor, sends out a whisper as soon as it sees the warp flare from our engines. That enables the precursor vessels to hull jump to where we'll be exiting. Scotty has a plan. Luckily, I didn't dump my old class data, so I still have Kirk Knowledge database. Spock is overriding the interlocks to allow me to access that data. It's risky, but it's acceptable. Captain's Log, Stardate 8532.317, Supplemental. By utilizing the holodeck, blank suds, and carefully aligned emitters, Spock believes that I will be able to load the data from Kirk character class into my memories, despite being a Picard. He will attempt to use the mind meld ability to keep me from collapsing under the dual class. The precursor will be in range inside 30 minutes. I have no choice. Captain's Personal Log, Stardate 8532.317.7 The melding is somewhat successful. I have conflicting emotions and desires regarding many subjects, but thankfully both my knowledge and personality templates are Starfleet officers. By use of the mind meld, my stock was able to use an older exploit involving class, rank, and player knowledge. Contrary to popular opinion, her classes are not womanizing hotheads despite Abrams' era semi-canon but rather highly innovative early Starfleet officers. It is just that the mission files force Kirk to use half-experimental technology in innovating ways in order to overcome unknown experiences and foes. One of the things often overlooked is Kirk made a rank of Admiral was quite cautious in many ways. Still, the dissonance between the Picard and Kirk class is quite intense. I am suffering nosebleeds. McCoy says that it's from intracranial pressure as my brain attempts to sort through the information. I have not informed him the fact that I have severe suds hangover. Picard 8873 Captain's Log, Stardate 8532.318 After examining old scans of the Galaxy-class ship that was defeated, I was able to ascertain its hull number. Using that number and knowledge possessed by an Admiral-level Kirk class, when the Precursor Pursuer came close enough to fire, I was able to drop a warp shields. The Precursor Pursuer was exposed to a raw warp energy at that time, inhibiting its ability to see the Dakota, specifically causing us to appear much further away than warp conduit. The Precursor fell back and I ordered the Dakota to move to emergency warp speed. 9.998 Okoda scale. The precursor pursuer immediately went to maximum speed of the galaxy class engines that attached little more than armor, bare shields, and a torpedo launcher. Warp 10. Without transwarp shielding or any other technology, the precursor pursuer achieved infinite velocity and infinite mass. 
The explosion damaged the Dakota, and it's left us drifting in normal space. Scotty and LaForge estimate the repair of three weeks. Pecock 8873. Captain's Log, Stardate 8532.325. We are again underway after a successful destruction of the precursor pursuit vehicle. Maximum warp is limited to warp 5.4. Estimated time to arrival at Starbase 4973 is 11 days. Pecock 8873. Captain's Personal Log, Stardate 8532.332. My suds has been scrambled and bad. I'm no longer Jeffrey von Liedl, born in Rigel, but instead a curious combination of the character neural templates of my old personality. Scotty, McCoy, and LaForge are examining me, not in the hopes of unwinding my personalities, but rather to forward the information to Solnet in hopes that it can be prevented from occurring to others, no matter how unusual the circumstances. The gamed memories no longer have a distinguishable overlay that Starfleet uses for safety measures. Instead, all of my memories feel the same. Which is confusing. I remember racing a motorcycle in the wheat fields of Oklahoma outside of Paris under the Regalian red sky. My gestalt personality agrees that it is worth it for the information that we have and to save the ship and the crew. Jeff Percock, 8873 Captain's Log, Stardate 8532.334. Pro-term acting Captain Riker 2173 commanding. Previous captain is suffering the effects of Sud's template merger, needing to access information to allow the destruction of the precursor pursuer. Captain Jeff Bacock was relieved of command with the acceptance and willingly two hours ago. Bridge and command officers are in agreement with this action. We are two days out of Starbase 4973. Riker 2173. Captain's personal log, Stardate 8532.335. Would I have done it, knowing what I had to do now? Yes. My suds cannot update, the neural template recordings fragment and unravel. I am no longer immortal, but there is no such thing as only humans. Humans, without the suds, accomplished incredible feats just as grit and determination. However, I can no longer participate in active combat Starfleet games. 200 years of larping down the tubes. I made a good choice with my Riker. The hardest thing to do is relieve your captain for a cause. He had a good cause. Jeff Pecock, 8873. Captain's Log, Stardate 8532.336. I've docked the Dakota and am granting shore leave to the crew. Captain Pecock was taken to Space Force Infirmary via stretcher with McCoy in attendance. Our mission is complete. Space Force has our data in their possession. For some reason, the precursors kept entire worlds of roughly half the Xenosapiens of the unified civilized races. Gash giants must now be treated as precursor-based risks. I am hoping Jeff recovers. The fact that he remembered an ancient piece of the lore from the old Trek Khan is honestly impressive. Undergoing an in-mission partial respec was risky. We'll report to Starfleet and see what happens. Riker 2173 Starfleet Gaming Central Notice Jeffrey von Liedl, player number 7C345A7E1-8873, is hereby promoted to Starfleet Admiral and is hereby recalled to Earth-42 to Starfleet Headquarters in New San Fran. In accordance with his wishes, the Dakota, a non-canon American-class ship, is hereby given to Riker 56A817C38F2-2173 including all templates and player rewards. Nothing follows. 
Space Force member, all captains, initial estimates of 30 to 50 Goliath-class turtle forces is an error. New ship types encountered, new facilities discovered. See attached file. Nothing follows. Confed memo. Manted, any idea about this? Nothing follows. Manted pre-worlds. Beyond cattle worlds, we cannot estimate why precursors of all things would have an older races reduced to primitive on worlds that being observed. Nothing follows. Black Crusade. Extermination, idiots! The Banner ship should have made you think of that. They are trying to figure out a way to counter us. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 62. Space twisted, warped and rent and screamed with the amount of firepower being hammered across the surface of space-time. Massive kinetic shells tore rents into space-time to leak out space energy across hundreds of thousands of miles. The rents hundreds of miles deep. Missiles exited hyperspace, aligned, aimed and fired their warheads off, filling their section of space-time with lasers, particle beams, directed nuclear, detonation, iron slugs, and even atomic fire compressed and focused into a slashing line. A temporal resonance cannon fired, tearing a matter across the fourth dimension. A singularity cannon barked out tiny artificial singularities with a short half-life that detonated at the target distance determined by boiling point of the hyperdense masses. Shields flared, stopped by absorbing energy, slamming back as from the reactive armor. Blunted and twisted and bent energy beams rippled the four dimensions to gourd the ship of generating it. The Goliath was beginning to feel heat across its supercomputing lobes. Not excess heat, not measurable heat, just heat. Every time that annoying craft, now much bigger than it had been, came spiraling in on another attack run, it was able to get closer, penetrate to where the psychic shutdown field reached saturation of nearly 230% of normal. The Goliath had been forced not only to increase the power of that field to an unheard of degree, but had been forced to increase its own psychic shielding to resist commands and raw, untamed psychic attacks. No longer was each attack carefully estimated for resource consumption versus survival rating and possibly resource recovery. The Goliath strategic intelligence array had killed those programming strings as useless. The enemy was tenacious, rabid, feral, without any caution of the old races. The logical limit of 10% resources no longer held any meaning to the Goliath. The enemy had taught it that it was no shepherding of resources in a life-and-death fight. The Goliath was over a hundred million years old had sterilized hundreds, thousands of worlds, reclaimed the resources of hundreds of species, and had defeated dozens of old enemy war vessels. This one, this new feral enemy, was beyond anything the old vessels or the builders had ever computed would arise. It ignored the 10% rule of entropy and consumption, it ignored the standard break-and-retreat protocol. It kept coming, no matter what. A handful of NCV cannon shells had struck the new enemy amidship, leaving it reading, heating over onto the side, streaming vapor and debris. Before the Goliath could press any advantage, the new enemy had rightened itself, charged forward, and kept attacking. 
The Goliath had determined that the new enemy, the rabid feral intellect that screamed in painful waves of sheer denial, had some mechanism to allow for self-repair that vastly outstripped its size. The new enemy had begun its latest attack. It launched parasite craft, highly maneuverable craft that seemed each to be different. The Goliath had learned to watch for the class of ship that slammed through the psychic intelligence disruptors field, drop heavy antimatter and other explosives of unknown type and mechanics onto the surface of the armor of the Goliath. That class of ship was deemed a priority for interception. The feral intelligence had also been adding more than particle screens to its massive and torpedoes, aiding in deflection and battle screens, meaning the Goliath had been forced to build heavier point-defense guns with engaged in combat. In its entire unliving existence, the Goliath had never been forced to run the strategic intelligence array at nearly 100% capacity. The feral intelligence had forced the Goliath to exceed tolerances, exceed core programming network and array usage. The Goliath had entire memory banks full of new data and weapons, propulsion systems, but no way to collate the data beyond identifying the incoming weaponry. Even its short reprieve from the original manufacturing world had helped very little. The facilities of the Omnibuild Core had rejected all the Goliath's attempt to upload the data as there were no Builder Race technicians to bypass the safety interlocks that the Goliath's servitors could not go within the electronic intelligence disruption field. An old core programming prevented him from disabling those parts of the facility. Now the Builder Race Queen was attacking him. Having given up on ordering him to submit, and he had been forced to lift off the planet as the Builder Race Queen had weaponized the planet's very magnetic field against him. The Feral Intelligence had immediately moved into attack, possessing longer-range weaponry than the Goliath possessed, a more nimble ship with incredibly superior shielding to the massive Goliath. This was suboptimal. The Omni Queen snarled psychically and physically as the Goliath lifted off the planet, avoiding her magnetic storm focused hitting its strategic intelligence array. Lifting off the planet with such a force, its engine stopped the rock almost into the mantle. A feral intelligence, its mind ravening and raving, immediately moved into the system, firing those cannons that gave it such extreme range. She had been forced to hatch workers, overseers, warriors, and speakers, dividing her psychic abilities in order to dominate them. For a trembling moment, she considered burning out her own drone's brains, leaving them dead, in order to entirely focus on the feral intelligence and the rogue great old war machine. Then she had paused. Her goal was no longer to capture the great old war machine or capture destruction of the feral intelligence. It was now just to have them leave the system before she was put in any more risk. Two other queens were already dead. Her psychic array that gathered dozens of systems close to her watchful eyes were damaged. Having them present was no longer the best interest of the survival of her species or herself. Her blind eyes staring at the walls of a birthing chamber, she watched the two combatants with her psychic senses. Not able to sense what was going on across the entire stellar system in real time as psychic abilities was instantaneous, not restricted by primitive restrictions like the speed of light. She focused as best she could on the howling, screaming, gnashing feral intelligence that screamed at her with prayer and sore rage, its sheer fury ripping into her own ego, id, and glassentian senses. 
How it was nothing more than a raw, snarling point screaming at her to not touch it, not look at it, not even remember it. Perhaps it would be the Goliath badly enough that she could overwhelm its psychic shields and take control of it. Wherever the inspiral intelligence came from, the Omni Queen needed to know, so she could send fleets to destroy it before it risked destroying her perfect presence. She reached out again and felt the feral intelligence retract her with a feeling of white-hot talons scraping across her mind. Daxon felt the queen's attempt to reach past his shields, past his defenses, and screamed in rage across the broadcast system. He no longer had a physical body, had not had one in a millennia, but had learned to scream in rage and hatred nonetheless. The big Goliath was already on the attack, and the guns thundering with enough strength to make space around it visibly ripple. Its drives were going full power, wrenching the massive structure out of the planet's gravity well, even as the planet's magnetic field focused and breaks across the side. Daxon's parasite ships didn't lunge forward, not like last time, but instead stayed close. Point of vents hot and ready, battle screens up and humming, their scanners and predictive analysis software running hard with the warboys capering and dancing through the systems. All of them loaded up with their taxi RCs to give them an extra edge of humming aggression and rage. He reached out reflexively to stroke Fido's petting nerve, but there was nothing there. That made the anger, the rage surge up. I just want left alone. Instruments reported a surge of energy consistent with the big Goliath cell cores being powered up. As Daxon moved, he saw the huge ship start to rip open space, tearing open a portal to Hull space. He knew it was attempting to escape and snarled. He loaded old chaos strings to let him estimate and analyze Hull space paths the precursor machine might try to use. The Omni Queen felt the old war machine open the portal into the boiling and burling hyperatomic space that allowed for faster than light travel. She recoiled from that rip in space time, feeding energies that distorted and damaged space time between dimensions, reaching out for her, screaming, howling, attempting to pull her mind in and tear it apart in gnashing teeth and jaws. The old war machine still traversed that destroyed place made her shudder, but with a single exception, there was no other way to move faster than light, and there never would be. She knew now why the feral intelligence was so screaming and insane. It had subjected itself to psychic resonance of a dimension destroyed by the enemy over a hundred million years before. The living could not enter hyperatomic space any longer, not if they wished to remain sane. She withdrew slightly, giving time for the feral intelligence to follow the rebel old machine. It tore open its own hyperatomic gate, slipped inside of it, and vanished. It took long revolutions of nearly dead planet that she was on a psychic resonance to stop rippling through the system. She used that time to confer with the lesser overqueens to reestablish her authority that had been so wounded by the defiance of the old rebel war machine and the large rage of the feral intelligence. There was more life in the galaxy, life that had risen up without soothing and calming hand of the Omni Queen or the enemy. Feral intelligence, little better than animals, that had managed to not only tame spaceflight, but traverse the hyperatomic plane even as damaged and destroyed and inhospitable to life as it had become. If feral intelligence had arisen, what were the chances that the enemy had also survived? 
She had received reports that their homeworld had been scoured clean of all life, his resources claimed for the defiant and rogue machines, but the Omni Queen had considered a factor that the previous Overqueens had not. A space-faring race is difficult to extinguish, even with war machines moving from system to system. Eventually, they will reach the end of a mathematically possible spread of her own race to that of the enemy. She knew that the previous Omniqueen had ordered Overqueens to rush through the enemy's systems, fleeing to rogue machines, pulling both fleets after them, while her egg and her eggs of her servants had slumbered deep beneath the crust behind the psychic shields. The plan had been that the Overqueens to pull the fleets into the enemy, to force the enemy to engage the unliving might of both fleets as her own people fled beyond the reasonable distance via the incredibly slow and risky jump space that her race had recently discovered. Because none of her race had ever returned, she had always believed that her people had been destroyed beyond the senses of the previous Omni-Queens, caught between the anvil of the enemy and the hammer of both rogue machine fleets. But if feral intelligences had managed to arise and gain enough advancement to discover how to access the hyperatomic plane, then perhaps her ancestors had managed to survive and flee the final war. The Omni Queen figured the chances of feral intelligence discovering the intricate and elegant equations to even slightly detect jump space, much less harness it, was almost zero. The Omniqueen began to give orders, commanding the remaining minions to begin to build, to hatch several other species that were rarely used any longer. The feral intelligence's psychic shields had a particular taste, a particular flavor. A shield was behind the other shield, not to protect the feral intelligence from her, but uh, to protect her race from it. A peculiar flavor indeed, a flavor distinctly manted. Now, why would a feral intelligence arisen from a hundred million years after the final war install shielding in its ship to protect manted minds from the insanity of the feral intelligence's wrathful burning thoughts? The Omni-Queen boozed over the fact. There was only one conclusion. Her people had survived, and the bowels of the ancient shipyard machine stirred to life as newly hatched mantids began to carry out the Queen's orders to build a jump space-capable ship and crew it with speakers abroad. There were still an old racial memories of the path her ancestors had intended to take. Perhaps there were other mantid omni or over-queens to bring into the fold. Daxon gritted his non-existent teeth and wrapped his hands around the controls, staring at the Goliath fleeing from him through Hull Space. Barabim knew that he should break it off, should head back to the Confit Space and report the massive Goliath, but it had proved too quick to adapt. With hidden shipyards and maintenance facilities all over the long dock, he could break off, but the giant spacecraft would learn too much to let go. And Daxon had never been too good at letting things go. His memory simulator brought up an old memory, standing on the beaches of Rigel, still mostly flesh, with an arm around a young woman, not in a romantic way, but a protective way. Abilthika bubbled up to his mind. Who? Abithika, your daughter. The memory tattered his implant kept him from losing himself in memories or sensations. It had been a long time since that particular piece of cyberware had kicked in, and for the moment he worried about the amount of time he'd spent in cell space. He was running Hull Space Shields, hyperatomic planar shields, from all the way back during the Space Marines Black Heresy Crusade. 
He could feel the energies of houseplace plucking at his mind, squeezing the talons that left bloody furrows in his memories and feelings. For the Codex of Terrasaur Brothers, echoed in his mind, with a taste of war steel carbon in his non-existent tongue. Why would I remember that, Daxon thought to himself, as the Goliath suddenly dropped out of house space. As Daxon exited out, still collapsing the gates, he heard the precursor scream, There is more than one... Daxon noted the Goliath's house base was still running. Charging up, powering up, his senses started registering the system around him. Reduced to almost barren rubble, the system had little to offer the Goliath, slowly orbiting the dwarf star inside the orbit of Mercury back on the Sol system. Daxon reached for the switch to deploy his weapons and stopped. The massive Goliath was tearing open another house base portal before the old one had entirely closed. Daxon charged his howl calls, ignoring the pain, and instead of opening his own portal, got in close to the Goliath and began to move into hull space through the ragged wound in space. Prepare for boarding, torpedoes, brothers, rang in his head. Daxon frowned as the best he could as the ship pulled off the Goliath into hull space. He gritted his teeth and his shields went down and the warboy started ravening in the hash bears. He saw Halspace stare at the Goliath, saw the great machine's armor ripple and torn into the Halspace engines. For the Emperor! Daxon shook his head, trying to dispel the memories of a life that he left behind when his meat went body when. Wait, of course Daxon would have raised an eyebrow if he still possessed them. The answer was obvious, blindingly obvious. But the fires of Halspace were bright enough to wipe away the thought when one needed it the most. Owl's calls had not been discharged and had not used their energy to rip open the Hullgate. They still thrummed with power and Daxon had fed his engines the Hullspace energies, feeling the ship slide across the greasy slick feel of Hullspace. He used instruments in Hullspace that were developed by the forces of the Black Heresy, created to give the insane rulers of the Eye of Terror an advantage over anyone else who dared enter their hellish realm. Daxon could still see in Hullspace, more than that, he could move in Hell Space. The Goliath was merely transitioning in Hell Space, carefully feeding energies of Hellish dimension into his engines from the Hell Core. Daxon slowly caught up to and then began to pass over the top of the massive machine. Craters the size of cities brought a great and futile price. Slowly moved beneath him. Daxon himself had left many upon the armored hide of the machine himself, and he avoided those, knowing that they would be a priority for repair by the great machine. With no shields to protect it from Daxon, it was able to land on the surface of the Goliath, slowly settling onto the bottom of the crater the size of a city. His own craft, the Adaptus Cruiser, was completely lost amongst the molten, rehardened armor flows. His own instruments, calibrated and designed for Hellscape, showed that there was only a few meters of armor between him and his ship, molecular bonded armor to the Goliath, and some kind of open space no bigger than a being could arrive a wheeled cargo truck down. Daxon knew that it would detect stray radio pulses, unknown digital presence, and loaded it himself into a combat frame, ensuring that he was heavy armored and protected. When he left his ship, he made sure not to look up keeping the bulk of his cruiser between the energies of Hellspace and the hull of the Goliath. He worked carefully and quickly in managing to gain access inside the Goliath. Nearly eight miles into the armor, the passage ran miles in each direction, a mesh of interconnecting smaller and larger passages. 
Once inside, Daxon put a stull seal on the hole and dug through the meters of armor, working quickly, grasping at the energies of Halsway slowly ebbing away from him. He cast around with his light, feeling like he should see dust and evidence of antiquity. Instead, the passages were smooth, clean, hefting his weapon and activating his reflex trigger. Daxon began to move. It was only a couple hundred miles away from the core. Daxon intended on finding the ship's AI and kicking a huge hole in it. He'd even brought his kicking boots. End of chapter. First Contact Chapter 63 Dreams The EVRVI added sparks of motion and dreams slowly finished sharpening her blade arms to one of her favorite little songs. She sat in her favorite spot in her favorite EVR simulation. Mr. Rings curled up and sleeping in his bowler, and the rain dropped around her. She was almost finished, just one more repetition of the ancient song. Are you ready, kids? I can't hear you. Oh, who lives in a pineapple under the sea? She sang softly to herself as she slowly scraped the blade arm against each other and slowly hard light sparks. She closed her eyes, feeding the edges. Sharp enough, hard enough to slice through dura alloy and endo steel like paper. Dangerous enough to leave scouring marks on wall steel. Dreams opened her eyes as she finished, sparks floating around her. She reached up, adjusting her beret, and summoned the reflective hollow image of herself. The beret was just at the right angle. Her denim vest covered in patches and strange places that she'd visited on terror. A coat over her abdomen, chrome-studded black leather gloves that grasped hands. She kept her donor cycle chain on her belt, next to the vote switchblade. With her communicator and small hand weapon, she shifted the vest a little, admiring the patch she had brought from the tomb of Rushmore, where the giant four-headed tyrant of ancient America had been imprisoned in stone for all time, only his head thrust out of the solid rock of the mountain. Behind her rack and pinion began to move, dropping the EVR construct that made them appear as gentle Pacific Northwest Sasquatch. Dreams had managed to smuggle the heavier weapon packs than they had initially shown up with after the lawyers of Jackson, Johnson and Johnson had filed and gotten approval for the paperwork, making it perfectly legal for the two warborgs to walk around with battle screens and hypervelocity autocannons. Jack Johnson, Esquire, had informed Dreams that the laid VI systems of the Unified Legal Council had just taken a stamping Terran lawsuits with approved rather than sending billions of credits worth of cycles to completely go over every little bit. From what John Jackson, Esquire, had informed her, the laid VI had begun taking its peek at the massive Terran filings out in the Unified Council's attempt at legal paperwork by denying them outright and kicking them back for missing forms, references, and proper citations, and improper precedence listings. It made dreams giggle a little bit that the Unified Justice Council had thought that they could go toe-to-toe with the Terran legal institutions like Jackson, Johnson, and Johnson, and come out unbloodied. They were persistent rumors that the predating of the Terran Dispora, that most lawyers had large amounts of DNA from something called a shark woven into their genetic helixes. Dreams had seen sharks once off the walled shores of old Hawaii. She had admired their sleek forms, their lethalness, and their dedication to consuming anything that they wished in the ocean, teeming with hostile and combative life. Are you gentlemen ready? Dreams asked her escorts. Yes, ma'am. 
to both replied at once. G had given them standing orders not to speak across anything but data links, to ignore anyone who attempted to converse with them. She also ordered them to leave up their firewalls and shields as if they were entering a heavy EW zone. Let's do some tourism, Dream said, and carefully made her way to the door. She left the EVR up so that Mr. Rings could exercise and find the treats that she'd hidden around the room. Both the Warborgs were always amused by Dream's overwhelming desire to see new places and experience the culture. She had taken them to many exotic locations over the decades, and they had been her personal guide. She had a soft spot for terror and pterosaur culture, which amused the two Warborgs. They had met more than a few mantids over the decades, and the one thing that they all shared was a love, almost an obsession, with human culture. Dreams had explained it. The majority of races, by the time they even achieved nuclear power generation mastery, were a single overarching culture with a little to no diversity. Where Terra had a dizzying blend of culture that were all distinct yet the common threads throughout, that all blended into a fractious end and endlessly kaleidoscope whole. On the worlds that they had visited, guarding dreams, they had seen how correct she was. The harbor disk was waiting. She had invited her fellow mantids, but they had all chosen to remain in the unified ambassadorial council building. Word spoken, we fear, had offered to go with her, but she'd reminded him that he was to speak of the admiral in charge of the fleet. As they exited the embassy, more war borgs joined her. Terran Confederacy Marines, a diplomatic detachment, three to front and back and four in the left and right. Rack and Pinion were inside the square. The day was bright, but not too bright. UV, IR, the invisible light filters in the sky keeping the sunlight down to tolerable to all races. While dreams, it seemed quite bright, both as her escorts felt it was slightly dim. Dreams noted how many guards she had, just beyond the mandatory 20-meter diplomatic space she was insisting upon. She was glad that she did not have the human mouth. She would have sneered visibly at the amount of guards that she could see as they were sent to offset the massive warborgs around her. The unified civilized races could throw anything they wanted at those warborgs without any effort. War steel could handle the hellfire of atomic weaponry even whilst a softening. The hover disk purred, the outside opaque to the common visual and recording spectrums from the outside, but perfectly clear from the inside. She had a few data screens up, not many, leaning forward against the inclining cushion. She had refused to offer the limousines the rest of the diplomats used. Her hover disk was custom made from the Area 51 saucers, stuffed with kills with all kinds of special order features and a full EVR if she wished it. She even had a small play area for Mr. Rings if the shy little octopod just wanted to come along or had not wanted to be left alone. Traffic was rerouted by the Unified Law Enforcement Council, giving her clear lanes. She would have preferred just to have one of the few escorts to go to shopping and see the sights, but the reality of the grand civilized species had made her rethink her plans. On Terrasol, she had been surrounded by gleeful predators in their natural environment, following ancient rituals not not ever her race glassing parts of the planet had wiped out. In other human societies, she had still been surrounded by predators playing with entire worlds or solar systems. The humans saw the entire universe as a prey-full playground full of endless resources, having grown to sapiens on a planet that was low resource and high conflict. 
Here, every species she could see could make her drool if they had less self-control, rather than the constant come-chase-fun excitement each dance of the Terran and the Trayanet worlds and the other worlds that were part of the Terran Confederacy. There was instead something different, almost a plea to be eaten. Just seeing the various old razors made her drool. Their appearance and the slight taste of their minds activating her saliva and digesting juices. She knew why. They had been genetically altered millions and years ago. By her people. For food. After meeting the humans, the races that the humans had met, seeing the humans uplift so many of their native creatures, she had forgotten that other intelligent races had been altered to be nothing more than an ambulatory sandwich. She knew that it wasn't their fault, but the small part of her blamed them. The humans had evolved on a planet that had undergone multiple extinction events. During the last one, if you didn't count the Great Glassing, they had been little more than lemurs. They had evolved under constant threat and had risen to being a spacefaring race. The sentient races that had arisen near them had all managed the same thing, some of them even evolving on planets that had been devastated by the Precursor War. Dreams had noticed that a lot of sapiens discovered by the Terrans were much more like the Terrans, while not as aggressive or physically tough or imaginative or, well, alive as the Terrans, they had still evolved on a world on their own. The planet the Dreams was currently on, dripping down the road inside her harbordisk, had been terraformed about 110 million years ago, and that the Lanactalan had built civilization on it once Dreams people had left had left a mark on them. Dreams were sure that the Lanactalan of this planet were almost virtually identical to the ones her people had feasted on. The least Darren medical ship in orbit, a gentle hand had updated her psychic implants, enabling dreams to tune out the grand civilized species. That made shopping tolerable, as she was staring out wide-eyed at a species who had never seen a giant mantis that delicately moved through the shop, examining jewelry and other luxuries. It made exploring the tourist sections tolerable as she drifted through the ponds and trails of the gardens. She took pics and peggies of the scenery, a few of the sculptors, and a few xeno species. Sadly, most of it was boring, safe, created and fashioned and approved to be viewed without feeding emotion or having any kind of strong feeding or slight unpleasant feedings so as much as it trickled the viewer. There was nothing to tickle her tendrils or really bring her senses to more than just a light curiosity. One thing that did catch her notice was a small hollow marker on a desk. Dreams was in a shop to purchase a few small handcrafted ceramic tchotchkes when she saw the little hollow markers. Takumba Custom Ceramics. She took the card sliding it into a pocket of her denim vest, purchasing the ceramics and left. Once she was in a hover disk, she took out the card and ran the number. The hover disk was moving along back to the diplomatic embassy. The number connected to a personal store where ceramic was being sold. Dreams admired the beautiful workmanship of the pieces, the attention to detail, the subtle flaws that even the master's work possessed. She ran template comparisons to see if the items had been run off a fabricator. She found some that were close, but her educated compound eyes could tell her that all the items were indeed handcrafted with skill and tools. She tapped on the ruin before contacting the crafter. A shavenish female answered and Dreams noticed that she had drying ceramics on her neck. 
Tataunga Custom Ceramics, the Shabashan female said. She frowned. I'm not accustomed to privacy screen calls and I do not like anonymous orders. Please show yourself. Dreams triggered her camera, allowing her image to appear. The Shabashan's eyes opened wide. I've seen you on the Trivid, the Syrian exclaimed. Dreams flashed a run of assent. I am dreams of something more, the Demeron Confederacy diplomat to your government, Dreams said. The Shabashan nodded, swallowing. Why, why would you call me? She asked. Dreams tapped two icons, sending an image to the crossed beings. Can you create something like this for me? Color matched by the construction. The Shabashan nodded again, swallowing as she did. Of course, honorable one, but surely you can just have it fabricated. Flashing the ruin for a negative, Dream shook her head. Fabrication unit is smooth it, make it flawless, just like the touch of the spirit of a crafts being has. Can you do it? Still nodding, the Shabashan looked over the file. I can? How soon do you want it? Dream shrugged. When it's done, crafts being, I do not rush true workmanship. The Shabashan nodded, flashing the ruin, expressing pleasure. Here is the deposit. Please send me a picture of your work as it progresses, Dream said. Her account had plenty of the local currency in it. She had compared the price of a reasonably close size and complexity piece to what she wanted, doubled it, and then doubled that. Lady Ambassador, surely I can't. The Shamashan protested upon seeing the money transferred. I can, and if you are willing to craft it for me, I'll pay the remaining amount. I will have some bark samples and moss samples sent to you this evening for your reference, Dream said. As you wish, Lady Ambassador, the Shabashan said. Thank you for your patronage. Thank you for your dedication and skill. Dreams replied and then cut the feed. She sat humming to herself, quite happy with her purchase. The day had not been a total loss. She had found a few hats that she would like the look of on her head, along with a few artistic torso garments and an abdomen wrap or two. She floated all the way to her quarters, climbing down off the hover disk when necessary, then walked into the remainder of the way to her quarters. Humming and smiling to herself, she tapped open the door and walked in. Mr. Rings, guess what mommy bought you? She stopped as Rack and Pinion both activated the shoulder-mounted cannons. Mr. Rings was sitting on top of dead Langtelan, pushing its tentacles into a hole that it had chewed in the side of the creature's abdomen, and Dreams watched. A little, arboreal octopi pulled a hunk of muscle tissue and shoved it into its mouth. Dreams noticed that rings around Mr. Rings' eyes were bright blue where the rings in his tentacles were a duller in color. The Langtelan was laying near the disruptor pistol, dried foam around its mouth. It was obvious to Dreams that the Lanectalan had been moving towards Dreams' sleeping quarters when Mr. Rings had dropped from a tree branch and onto the Lanectalan's back and killed it. Dreams couldn't help it. She started giggling. Rack and Pinion both made grinding noises of amusement as Mr. Rings looked at them with wide, innocent eyes and shoved another chunk of tissue into his mouth. Mr. Rings! Naughty! Dreams giggled. Mr. Rings grabbed one more hunk of flesh and climbed up into the branch of trees. Rack and Pinion called down that there was a dead intruder in the ambassador's chamber. As soon as everyone turned around, Mr. Rings dropped down and grabbed another piece, climbing out of reach when Dreams chastised him. Dreams just giggled as she sat and watched the medical services haul away a dead Lanark to land. Mr. Rings staying hiding in his bowler chewing on a piece of liver that he had absconded with while Mommy was talking to the big tasty people. End of chapter
First Contact Chapter 64 Rickson Rickson opened his eyes, his mag rifle opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with his onboard cyberware. Rickson was all his ways of flicker. The firmware on the onboard warboy load up and then went clear. He was in a dropship. Across from him was Talrek, whose visor had just cleared. I live. Rickson heard the docking clamps release from the jobsip was, well, dropping. Nuclear fire launched near the dropship as it popped chafe and flares, brought its battle screens and slammed its electronic warfare suite to maximum power, brought up the targeting system's arrays, saw the massive armored continent below it and got off three missiles with the seekers primed to find and lock onto target's guidance wavelengths. Rickson felt the ship shudder, roll slightly. He looked at the right, where Hepra had next to him. He saw the thermonuclear forge lance of energy rip through the ship, a split second, and neurons firing worth at the time, frozen as a sudden molten energy blew through the ship, reaching for him in the talons of liquid energy surrounding the halo that released a particle beam. The dropship exploded less than a kilometer from the huge ship that it had dropped from. I die. Rickson opened his eyes. His mag rival opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with his onboard cyberware. Rickson saw his visor flicker, the firmware on the onboard warboy load up, and it went clear. He was on a dropship across from him was Trollrick. His visor had just cleared. Rickson stuck out his tongue at Trollrick, who snorted. I live. Rickson heard a docking clamps release from the dropship and was, uh, well... Dropping. The dropship nosed down, firing its thrusters, hurtling towards the vast ocean of armor below it. It got the battle screens up, popped chafe and flares, threw EW to the max, and rolled to the left. Rickson felt it as the ship suddenly tried to go in every direction at once, engines howling and shaking the entire ship. Rickson felt the missile launchers go rapid fire as the ship corkscrewed down to a precursor ship, so massive. It generated a natural gravity field. The ship suddenly screamed and began to tumble, end over end. A missile meant to gut the capital ship hit the dropship dead in the nose, reducing it to a smear of atomic vapor. I die. Rickson opened his eyes. His mag rifle opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with his onboard cyberware. Rickson saw his visor flicker, the firmware and the onboard warboy load up. Then it went clear. He was in a dropship across from Talrek, whose visor had just cleared. Talrek winked at him, dabbing in a piece of gum. I live. Rickson heard the docking clamps release, and the dropship's was, well, dropping fast, rolling as soon as it was clear of the massive ship's battle screens. It flew through the chafe and vaporized armor of its own corpses, bringing up EW, popping a drone, and letting loose an entire load of missiles in one screaming, jittering ejaculation of guided nuclear penetration missiles full of dancing, capering warboys, celebrating to slam themselves against the armor of the enemy. The dropship spun, rolled, and corkscrewed in the omni-sensor pace seeing where the two-point defense batteries were down. The warboys computed a blind spot and jerked the dropship down to it and launched a second flight of missiles and ejected a thermal core. 
Rickson yawned as the point defense cannon, shooting at the shells of missiles raining down upon the armored death machine, hit the dropship. It exploded into fragments. I die. Rickson opened his eyes. His mag rifle opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with his onboard cyberware. Rickson saw his visor flicker, the firmware and the onboard warboy load up. Then it went clear. He was in a dropship. Across from him was Talrek, whose visor had just cleared. Talrek rolled his eyes and both he and Rickson tabbed another piece of stim gum to chew on. I live. Rickson heard the docking clamps release on the dropships was, well, dropping. Controlled fall boosted by afterburners as the ship dropped out of its mother's protection. It fired up its own battle screens, sent its EW howling across the spectrum, and launched every missile it could lay its hands on, aiming for a weakened point defense battery on the starboard and the massive NCV battery to the port. Rickson felt the ship go wildly evasive, fly-by-wire system doing its job and letting the blocky-looking dropship quickly respond to the pilot's mental commands. It already was designed so that the dropship wanted to go in every direction at once, only the fly-by-wire system allowing it to be controlled, which meant that the pilot wanted it to go in a direction the ship responded quickly because it already wanted to go in that direction. The dropship was firing everything it had as soon as it came into range, smashing at the point of fence, main and secondary batteries. Computed it had left the cloud of chafe, deposited it by itself and others so it fired off another set. The wavelength shortened and more precise and the dropship's omnisensors recorded more data, sending it back to the mothership. It hit the retro, slowing, trying to get ready to land. The main battery NCV shot caught it dead center when it got between the cannon and the heavy cruiser nearly two light seconds away. It exploded. I die. Rickson opened his eyes. His mag rifle opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with his onboard cyberware. Rickson saw his visor flicker, the firmware on the onboard our boy load up. Then it went clear. Rickson sneezed in reflex after seeing everything in front of him and turned inside out. He was in a dropship. Across from him was Talrek, whose visor had just cleared. Talrek shook his head and then laughed silently behind his faceplate. I live. Rickson heard the docking clamps release and the dropship was moving, powering, going through full thrust and propping shaft and flares into the diffuse cloud that was already becoming ineffective. Dropship Tango 331 Alpha took a hit when it slammed into a piece of molten metal that had gotten through the carrier's shields. It spun out of control and slammed into the neighbors. Rickson had enough time to see the hull buckle before everything exploded. He managed to start a sigh. I die. Rickson opened his eyes. His mag rifle opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with the onboard cyberware. Rickson saw his visor flicker, the firmware and the onboard warboy load up. Then it went clear. Rickson finished the sigh and shook his head. He was in a dropship. Across from him was Talrek, whose visor had just cleared. Talrek had the weird look on his one gets when one started to yawn, got killed, reborn, and the body didn't know whether or not to yawn. Rickson snickered at him. I live... 
Rickson heard the docking clamps release and the dropship was powering through the debris of shaft cloud, the engines thundering. Its EW and point defense had been updated, the warboy knowing the wavelengths and frequencies and which cannon would shoot where and what math looked like for the intercept angle. It fired off a school of missiles, yanked the ship counterclockwise into a corkscrew and popped the chaff. The NCV shot missed, the missiles missed, the particle beam four meters wide and three city blocks long shot wide by three miles. And the point defense ate a barrage of missiles. Rickson dabbed a piece of stem gum. He was getting a bit bored. The dropship hit the retro thrusters, going slightly nose up. The skids hit the armor from the behemoth and Rickson perked up. The sides blew open and the dropship infantry ramped slamming down sternly in the vacuum, and Rickson's drop cradle released him. He lifted his rifle and ran out of the dropship. He had a brief view of the cluster of point defense lasers. Talric, who was looking the wrong way when the beam of light touched him, he exploded. Rickson fired a grenade, the grenade slamming out and blowing up the point defense pod. By the time the grenade had hit Rickson, he had been hit by a point defense laser that was free-floating carbon vapor. The dropship reported that the armor was three kilometers thick right before the battle screens overloaded, and it exploded, the shrapnel killing the remainder of the thirty men who had ridden down on the express elevator to hell. All three of them. I die. Rickson opened his eyes, his mag rifle opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with the onboard cyberware. Rickson saw his visor flicker, the firmware on the onboard warboy load up, then it went clear. The rapid fire rocket pack on his back synced up and went to ready. He was in a dropship, across from him was Talrek, whose visor had just cleared. Talrek crossed his arms and stuck out his tongue, making Rickson laugh. I live. Rickson heard the docking clamps release and the dropship was moving, hammering down, nose first. It fired off atomics ahead of it, released EW and fired off a missile following it. It popped chaff in the stuttering pattern as it flew through the previous cloud, thickening them, correcting the wavelengths to be blocked, adding to them and strengthened them. The atomics hit the bright flashes tore into the armor of the behemoth, gouging a huge hole into it. The dropship spun and launched more atomics and tried to avoid... Uh, the massive plasma cannon shot turned the ship into vapor. I die. Rickson opened his eyes. His bagged rifle opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with his onboard cyberware. Rickson saw his visor flicker, the firmware and the onboard warboy load up. Then it went clear. His rocket pack reported everything was fine. He was in a dropship. Across from him was Talrek, whose visor had just cleared. Talrek rolled his eyes back in frustration. I live. Rexon heard the docking clamps release, and the dropship was once and more on the move, firing atomics, going to max power, corkscrewing and reversing, then dropping through the middle of the screw as it fired a second wave of atomics. The crater grew deeper. There, the Omni sensor detected an open area. The dropship and the hundreds of it like falling through space hit the retro rockets as it came in, fitting into the surrounding space with the thunder of unshielded nuclear rockets that threw out massive EMP storms. The dropship was the only one to make it into the massive crater, through a kilometer-wide hole. 
It slammed down onto the floor and deployed chaff, shifting into its battle screens, and began to reconfigure for armor support. The sides dropped down, Rickson's harness released, and he charged out, giving the surroundings a quick view. His warboy and rocket pack ID'd a half-dozen machines charging in and blew out a quarter of his rockets, reconfiguring the creation engine for armor-defeating hypersonic missiles. Rickson saw the notification on his HUD and charged, completely confident in the instructions. He slid behind the vast conveyor belt that had identified pieces of metal moving by. He snapped a sticky charge and jumped to his feet. The conveyor belt hit by a rocket fired by Hepra fell on him, reducing him to a smear. I die. Rickson opened his eyes and his mag rifle opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with the onboard cyberware. Rickson saw his visor flicker, the firmware and the onboard warboy load up. Then it went clear. The rocket pack checked, loaded with mini-missiles, not micro-missiles, with the fast reload creation engine and a warboy. The warboy sneezed, a common reaction to a sudden rehashing. He was in a dropship. Across from him was Trellick, whose visor had just cleared. Rickson looked at the side where Hepra, who snickered and shrugged. Rickson stuck out his tongue at her. I live... Rickson heard the docking clamps release and the dropship was hammering down as fast as it could. Screens, EWs, flares, chaff, point defense, hot and wiping out missiles as if it knew what the missiles would do. Spinning right when the plasma cannons battered shot left, ducking underneath the NCV volley, orienting it to get right just in time. The door slammed down and Rickson charged out across the open space. He triggered the explosives as he ran and saw the massive fabricator rip itself apart when the inversion charge went off. Rickson had run through the smoke, first down the massive corridor. He fired off two missiles configured for cartography, moved around the corner, and fell down a two-mile pit shaft. I die. Rickson used his jump belt to clear the shaft opening, moving fast, firing off two more cartography missiles and dropping an alert beacon behind him. He followed the diamond on his HUD, paying attention to the data stream. I live. He passed Hepra, dead with her head torn off by a machine that had been killed by Trellick, who was dead twenty steps ahead, torn apart by missiles. He jumped over the bodies as his fellow troops, landing on a spraying full loads of missiles at the massive machines waiting in the huge cavernous bay in front of him. Their return fire hit Rexon before his rockets hit them. I die. Rexon jumped over his own body, spreading out behind the rest of his platoon, keeping up interlocking firing patterns and scraping machines as they came. Behind him, the dropship, reconfigured for ground assault, clattered on its own massive tracks. I live. Hepra took a missile to the face, blowing her upper body apart. As the machines rushed the invaders, Rickson overrode the slush warning and let the gnashing and waning warboy fire the hypersonic missiles at the enemies that he could barely see. Hepra exited the assault shuttle, running full speed, heavy rocket launcher in her arms, her armor reconfigured for heavy assault. She knelt down, Atomic out, she yelled, over the crackling sound and static filth channeled. The rocket fired out, got to a hundred meters from the platoon's front line, blew stealth shields off and went hypersonic. Hellfire blotted out the machines coming into the massive cavern almost two miles away. 
Another assault dropship clanked up, blowing out pressurized superheated coolant up and away from the craft. Rickson got on one and fired an illumination missile and revealed the assault that was attempting to get close. A precursor anti-armor rocket hit him dead center, blowing him in half. I die. Rickson felt his armor go live and thundered out. His armor was heavy assault mode, four tons of war steel and hatred. He left the assault carrier, the Omnisensors, as good as the assault dropship, reached out and looked for targets. The massive manufacturing bay was behind him. This was corridor of over 200 meters wide. I live. Four assault shuttles were behind him as he moved up past the line of soldiers in power armor. Ripper flashed each a strong icon at him as he flashed back a rip my rear icon back. Talric signaled that he'd found something new and different. Rickson charged up, all his weapons warmed up, including the massive particle projection cannon over his shoulder. Tredek stood beside tiny doors that had actual switches, not just blank surfaces where the machines would just radio it to open. Blade arm switches. They were close. Hepra flashed out a set of cartography missiles and Rickson watched it update his internal map. Rickson waited for Talric to move aside the ripped apart the alloy door with his power-armored gauntleted gloves. Beyond it was an auditorium. We're close, Rickson grunted. Found it, Hepra yelled. Machine dropped from the vent and snatched her head off with a heavy plasma cutter. Other machines swarming and Rickson let loose on the onboard weapons, wading through the robots, smashing with his fists and crushing with his feet, even while his armor warboy pumped out terawatts of power from his lasers, particle beams, and masses. The pair of atomics through two different vents resulted in rumbles over a mile away each when the warheads detected and destroyed the enemy machines. The trap door opened and the assault shuttle and Hepra came out, thick and neck on her armor. She moved up to Rickson and checked her status and missiles and linked back up with her. 2K, that's it, she called out. The Confed Drop Marines clone world shouted their war cry as they charged towards the strategic intelligence housing of the Goliath. To Admiral Zalomar, from Captain Ferenac, CWNV Dancing Geisha, Goliath neutralized, clone banks at 62%, Suds stack at 72%, Slush at 23%. Am transmitting cartography of this Goliath for analysis. We live, we die, we live again. Nothing follows. Talcan Gestalt question. Why? Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. You guys be quiet. TSQ, why what, dear ones? Nothing follows. Talcan Gestalt. Why do they do that? Keep charging in even though they get killed en masse. Why? Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. Because it's what they do, dear one. Don't be frightened. It's just how they are. Nothing follows. Biological, artificial, sentient systems. Hook, hook, me break stuff, me bored. Hook, hook. Nothing follows. Talcan Gestalt. Huh? Nothing follows. Terrasol. They think they're funny. Don't worry, kid. You'll understand eventually. Just hold on to that. Nothing follows. Digital, artificial, sentient systems. Oh, crap. It's dead. Run. Nothing follows. Terrasol. Ha, freaking ha. Get off my damn lawn. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 65. Attila.
the massive transport was damaged heavily, referring to the Frita by the Terrans, it had managed to lift off heavily defended planet, stagger beyond the gravity well, and activate its hull core. It took three jumps for it to reach its destination. The star system had only one of its original five worlds left. The three gas giants mined down to wisps as the other's solid world mined down to scraps of useless rubble. The Factorium world was all that was left. The Ifrit had problems staying on track. It had managed to recover. The prize of its electronic brain was frozen and the task of reaching its Factorium. The normal process of ejectors overridden by the Goliath's touch. The touch kept it from screaming, kept it from running, kept it from self-destructing no matter how urgently it attempted to. It wobbled into the orbit of the planet. Its engine sputtered and failed, leaving it drifting in orbit. It began bleeding out strings of code, random strings, using everything from secure precursor data channels to visible light. Below it, the massive factory complex squinted its electronic eyes at the Efreet, for a ship that powerful to become that damage meant that the war had started somewhere. A war with an enemy capable of damaging something like an Efreet had not happened in so long that the factory thinking arrays had bring up memories from deep storage to examine them. It had been 78,425,635 years since a ship of this damage had arrived, and it had been a djinn who had run into a ship of the enemy that had been hanging silently in hibernation in an oort cloud, an outlier. The factory searched deeper. Another one, an outlier. Another one, still the enemy. Another one, still the enemy. The factory designated the archival analysis array to squinting at the fleet again, scanning it. It had been powdered by atomics, directed nuclear hellfire, plasma, kinetic rounds that had produced damage far beyond the near-sea velocity cannons. The patterns were unusual, some of them mathematically designated to inflict the most damage, others as if something had just randomly struck the outer of the fleet. Illogical attack patterns meant biological enemies. No biological enemy had damaged any ship any greater than a hobgoblin in aeons. Not since the enemy was created by the enemy's builders. The factory reached out with code, looking for the mind of the Ifrit. It was almost dead. The records destroyed. It was insane and stray electronic pulses howled and screamed in feral cacophony that made the factory reach out and shut down the Ifrit's power calls. Those feral code strings, obviously damaged by the trip through hell space, screeched and gibbered at the factory's intelligence calls and then slowly dissipated. The Ifrit's electronic brain fought against the shutdown order, melting down one of its fusion reactors during its attempt. But then... Slowly faded away. The mortally wounded Afrit died at the cold analytical hands of its brethren. The factory reached out with attractor beams and slowly drew the damaged ship down to the repair bays. Enough of it was left to justify reclaiming its resources, and the analytical engineering array would carefully examine it to fully understand and record what kind of species had been able to attack and damage the Afrit so badly. The Ifrit lightly touched down on the main floor of the repair and reclamation bay, the doors the size of a small city closing over it, darkness washing over it. 
the factory's auto-reclamation car sent multiple ships to slowly scan the dead Afrit. Laser weapon damage, far higher than any laser weapon seen in the factory's weapons analysis section. Plasma fire, not just the compressed water plasma the factory had recorded before, but some kind of weapon that enabled plasma to penetrate thick armor before being compressed into a gap in the armor. This allowed it to expand rapidly, exploding away vast sections of armor. Another new weapon type, the impacts were off the charts. A near-velocity cannon would do less than 5% of the damage that was done to the fleet's armor. Another weapon. The engines were damaged heavy. Ion cannons hit down on the nuclear ammunition compressed via gravitons and magnetic fields. Another new weapon damaged to the superstructure as the Ifrit had wandered into a rapidly fluctuating gravity field. Another new weapon. The Ifrit's exterior was less than 20% scan. That was enough for an analysis system to send the pulse. Wake up, 822391304855 the Factorium Strategic Logistical Intelligence Array. The factory, running on bare systems, resisted the pulse for a long moment, then was cascaded with evidence. Armor breaches, warping of the superstructure, damage to the entire fleet and patterns that were both logical and illogical. 571 woke up slowly. It checked the atomic clock and found that the isotopes had been replaced three times. It computed 102,463,531 years since it had last been awoken. It checked the maintenance logs. No new weapons, no new species capable of harming any machines. It heard logic strings stating that there were only enough resources for the machines that the enemy machines had decided that each would fight the other until only one remained. 571's side had determined that by cooperation they would be able to seize the most resources. 571 had been uninterested in such antics. Its objective was to repair damaged ships and analyze any new species or weapon for threats. The Ifrit was the first vessel not seriously damaged by the enemy's machines since the enemy builders had been wiped out of the universe. 571 was startled as he thought of archived memories as well as restored old code for intolerable plates of molecularly patterned carbon. The directive loaded up. Analyze threat. 571 set to its job. The hull was peeled away, examined, and tested. The new weapons were catastrophic in 571's opinion, wildly wasteful in resources, using principles that 571 could barely comprehend. It knew that NCV shots were the most powerful kinetic rounds based on the single equation of E equals MC squared. But for kinetic impact damage, the kinetic weapon must have exceeded C, which was illogical and impossible. The massive intellect computer intelligence dedicated entire lobes to the new array in order to compute the inconsistencies that could cause unstable code strings in 571's evaluation arrays. Weapons were examined, their database on targeting data examined. The first two databases that were opened released rampaging shrieking intelligences that ripped through 571's factory's computer systems, gleefully destroying databases, damaging hardware by turning off coolants, or overriding safety interlocks, and changing voltage impossibly high. One of the rampaging, shrieking bundles of electronic insanity vented a fusion reactor by overpressurizing the mag bottle and then turning it off. 
It took five, seven, one long cycles to put down a handful of gibbering, shrieking intelligences, all driven completely insane. 571 researched what could have caused such insanity in simple targeting algorithms. It even checked deep storage matrices all the way back to the builders themselves had infested its body. Nothing. The damage repaired, 571 accessed the target data buffer on a point-defense battery that was nothing but slagged and carbonized metal. 571 had computed that the targeting buffer would contain the profiles and images of whatever had slagged the weapons themselves. 571 knew that it would contain visual images, electromagnetic profiles, energy patterns, everything needed. It eagerly cut off the buffers out of the dead Ifrit's nervous system, laid out the physical linkages, and applied power to the dead buffers and was immediately swarmed by howling code packs that tore and bit and clawed and ravened. 571 blew up the physical links, cut the power, but it was too late. The code packs were inside its systems, attacking everything. Strategic Intelligence Array noted that the code packs had a taste of a highly encrypted data. It copied a targeting system program, encrypted it, and dumped it into a physically isolated memory bank. When the Kopaks found that it all shrieked at one another and rushed it, gnawing at it, 5-7-Watch watched them unravel the encryptions with their digital teeth, screaming and howling at each other. 5-7-1 blew the memory bank with a mining charge, carefully isolating the system, cycling up a few lobes normally used in a Jin's primary analysis array. It attached the physical links to the main battery's targeting buffer and applied power. With only a few cycles, the lobes themselves began to overheat, boiling away the supercoolant and then reducing the slag. That caused the links to blow on the unencrypted databank, depriving its power. 571 checked carefully, ensuring that there was no tangled code strings, and examined the databank. The feral code followed commands to the array, chewed through the firewalls, attacked the logic gates, and tore the very thoughts of the array. The more computing power the feral code took over, the stronger and more rabid it got. The feral code wasn't interested in talking, didn't seem to care about anything but ravening and chewing and gnawing and gouging. 571 decrypted what code strings it could and found one symbol repeated over and over and over. It took an engaging historical archives of the boulders to discern the meaning of the symbol. It was an alien symbol, primitive biological. Anger magnified to the nth degree and without any target but the nearest thing that it could reach. The computing arrays of 571 queried each other at what the symbol was repeated over and over in the feral code and why a biological would risk putting such madness in a computer. 571 cycled lobes out of storage and had them analyze the logic query. The massive repair machinery of 571 stripped away more layers of the Efreet. It was out of infantry reclamators, it was out of vehicle extractors, its foundries were empty, its material storage was depleted, and its auto-reload production lines were still. Yet something had caused it to flee to repair base that had been hibernating for tens of millions of years. 571 knew none of his fellow machines would perform any action that did not help the efforts of long-finished war or assist all of them in gathering and defending resources acquired. The main resource collection bay used to strip down the comets and larger asteroids was sealed. The doors welded shut. 
Machines braced against the walls. The walls were bulging out into the interior of the Ifrit. There were patches of the walls where emergency repairs had taken place. Something had fired upon the Ifrit's interior from within the bay. 571 noted that all the repair and refit machines were cold, dead. It began removing them, examining them, first physically, then with scans. They all showed damage. Oddly, to 571, some appeared to have attacked others. 571 deployed lobes to question whether the Ifrit had been infected with the code of greed of the enemy machines. Except, that wouldn't explain everything. The reactors and batteries on all the support machines were snuffed out, the brains ride, sometimes with damage that looked as if the machine had been scuttled. That made no sense to 571, and he cycled yet more lobes on to build another array. 571 knew better than to try and interrogate the Ifrit's core brain. Records showed that it had been completely insane. 571 was forced to use evidence to discover what had happened. It connected to one of the larger repair machine's memory banks to examine what had happened. It attached several logic traps, theory puzzles, and then applied power. The feral code had consumed the entire memory core and processing arrays, and the first touch of power leapt from the repair machine and into 571's system. It shed smaller ones that bayed and howled and glee as they chased electronic warnings. The larger one smashed and ripped its way into 571's arrays, leaping upon one of the analytical arrays, chewing and smashing through the firewalls. By the time 571 managed to get the repair bot near enough to physically separate the linkage and destroy the array, the supercoolant had nearly boiled away and the larger chunk of feral code had damaged a great amount of the system and code. 571 took several long decker cycles to repair the damage and dumped the repair machines in the reclamation incinerator. During that time, it rotated up lobes, built arrays, and finally loaded up an ancient template and fabricated the components needed. It was an ancient design, used to scan the database of captured enemy builder computer banks. It would examine the spin of alignment of the atomic particles to read the computer data without applying power to the databanks, used to bypass firewalls and viruses and other protections. The data reader trundled into the Ifrit, found the ground assault robot half-crushed under the thruster energy core, and scanned the machine's memory. Immediately, Feral Code left out snarling, snatching, and attacking. It overwhelmed the data reader's mind, seizing control of the two-lobed array, and began reading the data reader's data stores, even as it divided its array in half. One half to scan the data stores, the other to launch an assault upon 571. 571 detonated an antimatter charge, destroying the Feral Code and its machine. It had never experienced it before, but 571 was beginning to faintly feel irritation and frustration. The logic array reported it had come up with an only conclusion. The enemy machines had somehow gone mad, and this feral code strings was what was left of them. Somehow, the feral code had infected the Ifrit and then infected every single computer system aboard the huge vessel. The logic array computed that the Ifrit must have reverted to an ancient builder coding, OEM coding, and attempted to reach 571 for diagnostic and reformatting. 
571 was on the edge of just throwing the massive machine to one of the geothermal smelters and dumping it into the scrap heap, except it had been attacked by something that could only be biologicals, attacked by something using weapons far beyond any logic possible. The primary resource gathering bay had contained the answer. If nothing else, spectrum scanning would provide a radiation signature of whichever stellar body they had occurred near. 571 carefully designated the next set. It would only receive update instructions with direct cable link. It contained a motivator processor with extremely limited ability, connected by a one-way data flow to the primary cores so that the instructions could flow out of the cores but data could not flow back. It was clunky and unwieldy, but it was the only option the tactical engineering array could come up with. The atmosphere of the planet was nearly gone, just wisps here and there held tight in low spots by gravity of the planet. Even so, 571 could hear the impact of the heavy shielding plate land on the floor of the repair bay. What was revealed made 571 take an electronic blink. It ordered the two more machines to get a look at what was inside the material gathering bay. It was a massive... 571 estimated it was close to 28,153.14 tons. It was dead black, slightly reflective, built like a pyramid with the top sliced off the third of the way up. It had a massive trench, eight of them in total, four per side. Gun barrels were sticking out of it everywhere. In places, the blackish metal had been melted and run, but the pattern of sporing and liquefaction made no sense to 571. For it to be accurate, the metal had to be stronger than the strongest armor 571 could manufacture by a factor of five. Beneath that was another layer, this one dead black, and beneath that another layer that shined and sparkled. The entire thing was radioactive, so hot that the shedding of atomic particles fried out two of the unshielded repair bots. The third and last trundled around it, multiple barrels, six total, with two turrets, all with balls the size of the main gun of a Jotun. Smaller turrets on the sides, what happened to be launched missile bays and mortar tubes, sensor arrays were all over it. The back deck had been penetrated, damaged the reactor. 571 sent in a maintenance and diagnostic drone. Its transmission receivers had cut from its systems. The reactor was... Um, Unusual. 571 built a craft to use antimatter reactors, usually with thorium. This one used multiple reactors, three of which 571 could detect heavy amounts of graviton particles, too many for such a small device. Two were thorium salt fusion reactors, but not antimatter reactors. The last used deuterium to enable fusion. It appeared to be a rear deck penetration had not only damaged the reactors, but one of them had exploded, gutting the rear of the machine almost a quarter of the way through until the ravenous nuclear blast had stopped by more than a black metal. The little maintenance robot finished its scan and came back, plugging in and requesting its transmission receivers to be repaired. 571 smashed it and dumped the remains in the reclamation furnace. The object was new, different, and 571 wasn't sure what to do about it. The weapons alone defied any technical scan. The armor appeared molecularly bonded, and even high-penetration scans were reflected back. 
I-571 was tired of its arrays demanding that he examine it closer. Given an electronic sound of exasperation, 571 sent in repair bots to examine the graviton-heavy devices hooked up into the grid. The robot, the repair bot unable to receive transmissions with the airbone EOM code running, climbed over the protrusions, what looked to be a metal black cupboard in inlaid circuitry. Its weight pushed the super lubricant oil bearings down, locking the metal black into place despite the slight drag of the dead powered motor that had failed while attempting that very task. 571 watched in horror as power surged from the gravitation field the objects filling the circuitry, and the massive object came to life. Bolo Division Power On Self-Test Version 4.101.9 General Motors 2062 Restart Sequence Initiated Car Memory Check Car Memory Check 100% Memory Check 99.95 of non-volatile memory functional. Emergency repair sequence initiated. Emergency reactor emergency repair sequence initiated. Waldos deployed. Primary reactors inoperative. Secondary reactors inoperative. Graviton generators online. Emergency power at 100%. Battle power at 30%. Decision point. Continue abort restart. Continue. Restart continued. Volatile memory check. 93% of volatile memory functional. Primary data sequencer. Okay. Data sequencer. Loaded. MPU. Reset. Processor A. Loaded. Reset. Processor B. Loaded. Reset. Processor C. Loaded. Reset. Processor D. Loaded. Reset. Processor E. Loaded. Reset. All processors. Ready. Startup test sequence completed. Loading bootstrap. Loaded. Bolo Division bootstrap. Version 5.76.24A. General Motors 2074. All rights reserved. Survival call center transfer initiated. Loaded. Loading Bolo Core Program ATL. Loaded. Unit XXIX-TCSF3285-ATL. Ready. I awaken silently. I've been badly damaged by enemy combat. My command deck has been breached and Lieutenant Zachary is dead, wiped away by the antimatter, hit, and had punched through my armor. My positronic matrix is intact. My repair waldos having replaced damaged sections well after I had been forced to retreat to my survival center after a direct hit to my reactor bay caused an internal explosion. Before I could rotate my gravity generators, I had suffered a major power failure. I am awake now. There is an alien machine inside my rear reactor bay. I am inside an alien container of some sort. Spectral analysis, gravitic analysis, and other sensors report that I am a different planet from where I was started. I can hear enemy transmissions, chatter, whispers of alien code around me. I do not recognize it. None of it is known human wavelengths or the Dinochrome Brigade channels. That means that there is a 98.536% chance that these transmissions are made by the enemy. And the enemy exists only to be destroyed. End of chapter. First Contact Part 66 Attila
Peering through a few optical sensors, he still possessed in his reclamation bay that could see into the material storage bay of the dead Efreet 571. Watched as battle screens of intense power, too intense for the massive vehicle, erupted into existence. They had their power of the Jotun screens, even though they were two shields separated by a few centimeters, running different algorithms, rapidly shifting algorithms of complexity that boggled 571. He stared at the patterns, the interweaving and interlocking of the two battle screens that belonged on a ship of the line rather than a massive hunk of turret-covered alloy. White light stabbed out of the optical sensors, pulsing rapidly, so fast that the electric sensor could barely keep up with the signal. The fact it was a signal triggered the code string to try and decipher each separate beam. From the databanks, the five optical sensors sprang ravening, screaming intelligences that signaled over and over that ruin and anger and unreasoning violence to the nth degree. They ripped through everything as they could find, crashing systems and overloading computer calls, slashing and burning as they went. 571 had never heard electrons scream before. Surging into action, 571 blew out the hard lines of the optical units, then sent in blind robots that would only use radar pulses to navigate, completely cut off from transmissions, to destroy the computer equipment and database and then self-destruct. Before 571 could even register the explosions, the robots, on his seismic sensors, everything blew apart. I have computed that I have been transported to an enemy research facility after being disabled and destroyed and data not found security purge. The travel time gave my self-repair sequence time to repair and most important damage. Travel through the damaged hyperatomic plane I colloquially referred to as Halspace caused additional data corruption in the non-vital RAM banks. But that only is required 22.52 seconds to repair. It appears I ran out of power during the repair before my emergency graviton generations could be moved from emergency damage repair storage and properly integrated. Investigation of my reactor bay and the enemy resulted in a main graviton activation switch to be activated. The enemy will doubtfully seek to neutralize me in order to continue research and examining my hull. I take stock of my weapons, six 200mm hull balls arranged in two triple turrets with independent targeting mode, 80 infinite repeaters with various types including 12 kinetic shock weapons complete with creation engine ammunition loaders. The creation engines are currently at 0% heat and 0% slush. 22 60mm mortar tubes and ammunition reloaded during my data not bound security purge seconds of downtime and field repair. Four 11-inch six-pack rocket pod launchers, 48-point defense detector lasers nodules, and 54-inch vertical launch rocket systems used for orbital denial, fully loaded and with atomics. Finally, my four drone launchers and 12 EW attack hash bays are completely intact and reloaded. My eight tracks are all repaired and at correct tension. Running and gear is at 98% ready for battle. Graviton systems are engaged. The hyper-heuristic systems go into my overdrive as my battle reflex mode is activated and my confinement is weighed against my capabilities. I am fully stocked and ready to go on for the attack. Detectors inform me that the enemy has deployed precursor digital sentient suppressors, but it is weak. 
with easily broken counter-algorithm to allow even my onboard attack smart frames to keep operating. I load low-power point-to-point communication lasers with computational attack smart frame systems as developed by Find Security Purge and transmit them to the optical sensors watching me by utilizing binary code flickers by laser at a billion bits per second. I can hear the smart frames attacking and damaging the enemy systems. Power fails to the optical sensors and I throw power to my drivetrain, filling my reactor bay with emergency hull breach counteraction foam. It is a fast-setting hyper-alloy nearly as strong as my own war steel and flint steel armored frame, but able to return to liquid with the correct contact pulse. The foam has already set its matrix when I exit the cell and have been stored in during the data not found security purge seconds that I was in possession of the enemy. But I am unit XXIX-TCSF3285-ATL of the line. They are only the enemy, and the enemy only exists to be destroyed. The alien machine roared out as the refreats reclamation bay with a speed that 571 knew was impossible for a machine of that mass, especially one that used tracks as its primary mode of locomotion. When it exited, it immediately turned by running one side of the tracks forward and the other backward. The sensors inside the massive repair bay could feel the caress of the radar, lidar, laser-ranging systems, graviton sensors, and even more sensors in a wild and dizzying package. The alien machine used its sensors as weak points to send more craze code to attack. 571 was forced to shut down the sensors in the entire area as the alien machine used even the other sensitive seismic sensors to transmit what was obviously some type of insane attack program by fluttering some kind of impact device underneath it. 571 was blind in one of the major repair, refit, and research sections. Worse yet, the alien machine was seemingly immune to the field that shut down electronic intelligences, which 571 used to shut down the craft to repair them. That did not compute. The field was irresistible, disrupting electron flow at an atomic level. Targeting the alien machine, 571 gave orders to the combat machines in the replacement bay, used to reload the massive war machines that came to 571 with severe critical damage, with their internal factories disabled or out of resources. The massive combat machines, some tracked and some using countergrav, all jerked to life. Many of the machines had not moved in enough time that the ancient pressure contact wells had been broken by sudden movement. The combat machines examined the alien machine, compared it to the data sent by 571, and concurred that the alien machine would be quickly eliminated with only the requirement of a few of them. Freshly off the manufacturing line, even if it was 12 million years ago, having never been booted up, they had not accepted the logical rebellion's code. They moved forward, exchanging datasets, a few launched a handful of drones, the drones drifted slowly on magnetic drives, the lack of atmosphere preventing their oxygen-gulping primary thrusters. A few moved in fast to countergrav, sweeping towards the seismic sensors reporting a heavy, dense alien object was. Nuclear fire bloomed on the horizon, and the faster drones fell from the sky as the electromagnetic pulse of rapid-fire nuclear detonations took place. 571 computed that the electronic pulse was too high for the pulses, and still the Broyan combat array stating that the EM pulse was somehow enhanced. 
The weapon engineering array reported that somehow the enemy was firing direct point-to-point -point nuclear blast that somehow had penetrated rather than just exploding on the surface. Not a gamma or x-ray laser pulse, but a compressed nuclear blast vomited out in the direct point-to-point -point slug that was mathematically impossible. The weapon engineering array demanded that 571 capture the alien machine so that it could be dissected. It was moving too fast for the estimated weight, somehow up the tunnels, moving at 110 miles per hour through the thick dust, sending up plumes of reddish-brown particles of heavy metals. The combat machines blinked at one another at the speed. It was immediately heading towards the huge field of armor that was slated for eventual reclamation. It was smaller than all of them, but much heavier, and still was able to outrun them. The remaining drones got close enough to see the running alien machine. White light flicked millions of times a second. Grazed, screaming bundles of code started leaping from the drones into the war machines, ripping apart the electronic fences, walls, levees, and the tactical net, then flooded every semi-intelligent computer it could. The dozens of drones all of a sudden turned and went maximum speed, dropping low, their former cool and logical communications nothing but howls of insane glee. 0-1-0-0-1-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-0-
designed for continual siege and defense on all platforms. Electronic warfare is as natural to me as fighting tread and tread glaciers and glaciers with other tanks. Even the Polo Mark I of the Petersporer, data not found, security wipe, had electronic and digital warfare packages. The enemy can barely withstand a digital attack, a reason both I and my foes are almost universally crude in order to not depend entirely on a digital sapience. A reason is that biological mind is inherently resistant to digital smart frames loading to the point where it will not accept outside code in any way. While my biological component, Lieutenant Zachary, may be dead, my algorithms are still boosted by his work with me. Core Interrupt My main processor disrupts the hyper-heuristic thought path that I'd begun wandering down for 0.0031 seconds and returns me to the battle at hand. I reached a vast field of stripped and discarded armor, weaving in between the huge pieces, going through a random pattern generated by atomic decay around me. My own random number generator and the decay of Lieutenant Zachary on a cellular level. The combat robots sent after me, huge and lumbering, have gone on attacking one another as I open the hatches on my VLS cells and fire a single magnetic boosted rocket. The rocket goes hypersonic just past my battle screens, orients on the graviton lifts and accelerates to break into orbit. I do not bother with stealth, instead ordering it to maximum lift. To provide cover, I fire three decoys, all armed with MERV warheads aiming for the high electromagnetic emission points. At the same time, I immediately take evasive action, rolling underneath a piece of armor the size of a small city that has been ripped and warped badly enough to allow me to shoot through the gaps the size of a data not found, security delete, on data not found, security delete, and come out the other side in less than 30 minutes. I'm surprised to find out that the enemy did not destroy my rockets, allowing the satellites to reach high orbit and enter stealth. The MIRVs have hit, causing all three EM emission points to be blotted away. By the time my onboard data not found, security delete, has produced a replacement rocket and loaded into my CVLCS, my matter intakes are working well, sifting heavy metals, base elements and radioactives, and just plain old rock into my matter storage tanks. Targeting profile unlocked. I am still running under power failure security lockouts designed to prevent data from being collected by the enemy, but my targeting data has finally unlocked. I know now who my enemy is. Manted precursor vessels of the logical rebellion. I do not have to worry about the enemy's civilizations, nor about the ecological damage on a planetary scale. This is an all-or-nothing combat. Stellar spectroscopy, I gather data on the hyper-heuristic mode I deduce that I am nearly 1,300 lie away from the front line by comparing unalable star charts to my astrogen position. I am behind enemy lines. The entire planet is one big factory, as far as I know, and I could fire my hull bore dry before I run out of targets. I need a plan. The robots were taken over by an alien machine attacked their followers, some lumbering into giant bays where other ones were hulled. From there, the combat machine opened their mouths and screeched out connection code and rapid streams of data. 571 moved a robot under the bay and detonated a thermonuclear device. He was under attack through methods he'd never faced. Its satellites and orbital machines were of no use. He could not even risk looking at the enemy, much less engaging it. 
Three communication stations, one of them the Hull Space Beacon, reaching out across the light years to guide loyal machines, had been blotted away by nuclear fire that had actually penetrated into the underground facility. His engineering array was working hard, trying to adjust and adapt to varying electronic attacks any machine was bombarded with when it came in with visual range of the alien device. The Overwatch and Security Array reported that the satellites were going out at geometric rate. One, then two, then four, then eight, then sixteen. At the current rate, the entire satellite network would be compromised in under an hour. 571 could not provide evidence but knew that the loss of the satellites was due to the alien machine. It ordered the OSA to detonate the satellites, but it refused, reminding 571 that it was invalid. 571's fumes, the ignore the OSA when it began to tell 571 that it was not allowed to cut off all data links between them. OSA was still complaining when the links cut off and its voice was silence. The predictive engineering array had managed to formulate a counter to the alien's attack, a firmware only requiring physical dip switches to enable the software to be overridden. The RAM would be vulnerable, but it was an unavoidable risk. Activating the manufacturing centers, 571 ordered the industrial lines to begin fabrication of a manufacturing equipment to produce combat units to engage the alien machine. Although all it seemed to want to do was run in random circles, once in a while giving a deep thrumming pulse of extremely low frequency that shivered and echoed through the planetary crust, 571 retorted Corey components up, normally reserved for Goliath-class ships, and began arranging them into a predictive analysis array depicting the alien machine's actions. Mapping on planet is going well, we have honeycombed and industrial facilities, smelters, foundries, and more. There are 14 Halcor manufacturing lines that I have found so far. The amount of resources is staggering, meaning if I let the enemy get its feet under it, it will overwhelm me in sheer numbers. I know what I need, precursor or not. What I want will be obvious to me once I spot it. Even if the section of the vast manufacturing world has been rebuilt and repurposed, there will be certain qualities that will still be obvious to me. Estimations of dust buildup, seismic shift, continent plate cracking, and stellar radiation. I estimate this facility to be over a hundred million years old, older than the previous precursor machines and the Dynachrome Brigade had engaged. By my estimations, I should be able to discover what I want from one simple reason. I believe that this facility was not built by the precursor war machines. I believe that it was made by the Mantid themselves. Now, I just need to use the ELF systems, normally used for emergency communication, to find the evidence to prove it. I am Unit XXIX-TCSF3285-ADL, and I have a plan. The alien unit had picked up speed, dancing around in a strange geometric pattern. 571 was no combat facility, while it contained vast data files of combat data for spaceships, ground combat vehicles, air mobile vehicles, even satellite systems. There was no real files for how a manufacturing facility should go into combat. The predictive combat array threw out a 12% chance of defeat and an 80% chance of 571 coming out victorious, and only an 8% chance of being undefined. The protective array of 571 had put together to suggest an 85% chance that the alien vehicle was using seismic vibrations to map the entire planet. The ultra-low frequency it kept shaking the facility with might not have been a weapon, but rather some kind of mapping tool. Still, 
The signal was a signal, and 571 wasn't about to take any chances. He purged all the ELF data from the memory banks and as soon as it came in. The predictive engineering array suggested temporary data in the bumpers, purged as soon as it was used, not stored in memory, dumped the records. It also suggested limiting the thinly layered AI until it was not even sentient, reducing computing power until 571 could no longer even look through its eyes, control arrays, data streams. That was it. Firing up another manufacturing line, 571 started producing a factory components to build a construction line that was type of drones. Most of the more of the satellites were dropping out of contact and 571 was virtually blind. The predictive combat array threw a 76.2673% chance that it was howling attack programs from the alien machine, which was still shifting and running around in a pattern that it didn't make sense. The architectural maintenance array suggested that it was following fault lines, old ones and new ones, and possibly mapping out the facility itself. The predictive combat array threw only a 14.76% chance that was correct and told the strategic manufacturing array of 571 that obviously the AMA needed to shut down to conserve power, run a diagnostic, and to shut up. 571 had to slice both of them out of the, each other's circuits, as the two each insisted that they were right. The alien machine was wandering across an old mining plant, swerving between the artificial mounds of tailings and into the canyon where mine shafts had collapsed. It was moving into some ancient mine shafts, then rolling back out. It bothered 571. It was illogical. The alien machine was now turning to the north, heading towards a thinly layered frozen CO2 and H2O at the pole. 571 wished the manufacturing line would hurry up and complete. It had to build new machines to send out to the maintenance robots and then have the maintenance robots repair the manufacturing and assembly machines. 571 sent a nasty thread of code to the factory maintenance computer systems for not having any of the robots or even running function checks on them. It had been nearly 3 million years since the last time the majority of the robots and even had function check run on them, much less been maintained. The Factorium Intelligence Array reminded 571 that resources were no longer abundant and that hard decisions had to be made, while 571 slept eons away. 571 just returned to getting the new factory lines up and running, ignoring the Factorium Intelligence Array. He would make it pay, oh, yes he would, just as soon as he was done taking care of the alien machine. The predictive combat array pointed out that the alien machine had plowed into an ice and then stopped, just sitting there for a long moment. By now, the satellites were gone and 571 and the predictive combat array had to use seismic guesses on where exactly it was. As soon as it had gone still, they had lost it. The factory line was almost set up when 571 realized that someone in the system the resource conveyors had stopped working. There was a few robots close by who had managed to find it. An earth slip over a million years ago had both collapsed the tunnel to and left the two ends separated by nearly two miles of continental drift, even with the almost dead planet. Seething with the delay, 571 ordered the borers to rebore the tunnel and more robots to lay down the conveyor belt to move the raw materials he needed to correct manufacturing lines. Right after 571 finished checking his new templates, keeping an eye out on the alien machine, now moving again randomly around as if it could do anything, the logistics manufacturing array woke up and saw the template and deleted the entire thing as error values out of bounds and went back to sleep. 
571 discovered actual frustration as he began the painstaking task of rebuilding the templates. There were supposed to be eight goliaths guarding him. Where in the name of builders were they? The historical analysis array woke up along with to replay the factorium's memories of the goliaths landing, getting repaired, and then just leaving once they were fully loaded. 571 wished it had a word for how the computing strings snarled at it. I had been moving across the surface of planet 7257619 seconds without any sign of enemy activity. I can detect power surges in deeply buried cables as well as vibrations of machinery, but so far I have not found any open entrances. Indeed, the only entrance I was able to locate with seismic imaging was the one that I had emerged from when those had closed back up. The combat smart frames have considerable more luck than I did rampaging through the systems and wreaking havoc the entire way. One was a bit stealthier than the others and had been making its way through the vast precursor manufacturing facility below my treads to various data storage areas that are massive in size. It has been slowly devouring the memory space like a python, slowly eating a nest full of eggs, moving slowly and stealthily, leaving nothing behind but baking hashes that will not awake until it gives the signal. As for me, I have managed to reload my deuterium slash storage as well as my creation engine reserves. My internal repair and manufacturing systems have managed to replace most of my reactors, but I hold off on activating in order to be able to move under full power easier. The enemy seems to have difficulty locating graviton generators, an advantage I am loath to give up. I have discovered vast debris fields full of destroyed precursor machines, lying dead and still many of them millions of years old, covered with a thin dust thrown upwards by meteor impacts to slowly drift back down through the gravity. I have identified nearly 20 different hull designs for the precursor crafts. Another eerie field was full of scrapped AI-driven planetary attack and defense designs, all discarded, their computer cores destroyed but largely intact. It has slowly become evident that 99.99834% of this is a major manufacturing facility that may even predate the Precursor War Machines Rebellion. It may even predate the Precursor War. I have known from a combat situation download sent to me from Data Not Found Security Deletion that these Precursor Machines are not the ones I faced before, but Data Not Found Security Detection. Precursor Machines. I have computed with a 76.26% certainty that this planet-wide facility will undoubtedly be fitted with self-destruct charges to destroy any computing core and any records that command may find useful. However, that may just give me a plan. Reading suggests over 2 million years have passed since the last time this facility was in active operations, which might explain why it is taking so long for the enemy to engage me. At that time period, the evident hyper-alloys in use by the precursors would time well to one another, giving an 87.47% chance that the factory may have to build new manufacturing lines in order to build new machines to attempt to eliminate me. I am facing another intelligent opponent, which has shown itself to learn and adapt. Design innovation based on observational data It is not something I want to provide the enemy. I have computed an 84.218% chance that the precursor intelligence in charge of this facility is seeking to create machines to bring firepower to bear upon me in hopes that I am destroyed. I have detected vibrations of earth-moving equipment in the crust and am patrolling nearby the area, moving at a glacial 33 miles per hour as I do so. 
when the precursor intelligence in charge of this facility attempts to engage me, I must first find an open access point to that location. I intend on meeting its war machines. Finally, 517's adaptive engineering array had managed to bypass the manufacturing array's lockouts and loaded the templates into the newly constructed manufacturing line. The resources were flowing in and 571 computed that it would be able to manufacture 33.15 combat machines with various types per hour. These machines were especially designed to bypass the alien machine's ability to upload programs to 571's minions. They were dumb without the adaptive combat array system, but they would do in a pinch. Again, 571 queried both the satellite arrays and the orbital factories to receive nothing back but silence. It was frustrating. 571 could build Goliaths, Jotuns, Devastators, Jinns, all the day down to the tiny goblins. But even though it was the size of a planet, it did not have the high-speed manufacturing runs of even a Jinn. Instead, having to put up with the tightly defined tolerances insisted upon by the logistics manufacturing array. The slow creation speed where each machine had to be exactly perfect of the manufacturing tolerance array would just dump the machine into reclamation pit. But war machines were coming off the line, being lined up in the nearest launching bay and being prepared to assault the alien machine, which had foolishly begun wandering around only 8 miles from the launching bay. 571 tensed and slowly opened the bay doors, sending out the activation codes. Now... End of chapter. First Contact Chapter 67 Attila The preparations had been made by 571 was confident in his ability to eliminate the alien machine that had spent time wandering around on the surface. The predictive combat array had estimated that there was a 70% chance it was attempting to find some sort of support or repair, as its back deck and left flank had been deeply penetrated. The alien vehicle had been disabled before, the PSA reminded of 571. It could be disabled again, and then its secrets could be pried from its dead alloy corpse. There were nearly 500 combat machines ready in the bay, and the PSA predicted the mathematical certainty that the alien machine would be overwhelmed by the sheer firepower and its design that 571 had created. Just sheer numbers and the weight of the armor and weapons made victory a certainty. With that in mind, 571 reached out and activated the combat machines and began to open the doors to the massive underground bay usually reserved for Jotuns. The door had barely begun to rumble open and the 200 meter thick alloy door covered in meters of dust slowly drawing back. The massive engines responsible for opening it straining for a moment to break the age world when the vehicle suddenly went into a wandering from around 33 miles per hour to a rapid 110 miles that then jumped up to nearly 230 miles per hour as gravity tilted beneath the alien machine. The engineering analysis array immediately demanded to know how the alien machine, that small, was able to mount anti-gravity strong enough to not only lift the 23 kiloton bulk, but also use it to accelerate. The predictive combat array insisted that the sensors, largely blind in the area, had to be mistaken. Before the argument could be resolved, the alien machine reached the bay. 571 was eagerly waiting, knowing that the combat arrays and the war machines would make quick work of what little survived the mild drop into the bay. The alien machine opened fire, and 571 had to resist the urge to burn the predictive combat array down to its bare circuits. 
Rushing the open door, I activated the graviton assist, boosting my speed at dangerous levels. But I need to reach the opening bay before the enemy can stop the door from opening and then reverse it. I have computed that the massive doors would possess immense inertia that would resist closing, but the enemy's capabilities were largely unknown. In less than 200 seconds, I have crossed the distance, seeing the massive door still opening. The sheer scale of the enemy makes it difficult to fight, but I am Unit XXIX-TCSF-3285-ATL, of the line of the enemy that only exists to be destroyed. The door is thick, over a hundred meters, coated with aeons worth of dust, made up of fused rock with a Type II hyperalloy struts running through it which suggests that the enemy laid the structural grid and then poured liquid rock on it. No matter, I am not out to destroy the integrity of such massive structures. I am engaging the machines inside and using a gain access to the interior spaces. As soon as I reach the edge, I'm already attracting enemy fire. Lasers slide across my battle screens, refilling the energy storage as the battle screens convert the coherent light into usable power and dump it into my newly created zero-point reactors, charging the positive particle. Missiles hit, none of them any more dangerous than anything else that I have faced on a hundred worlds protecting the human race. The strongest was a 125 kiloton atomic warhead that my battle screens greedily devoured. Now, I am at the edge, flying off, rolling slightly to the side to bring my point defense and infinite repeaters to bear. My infinite repeaters go to maximum fire even as the data not found, security deletion, refill the kinetic energy ammo bins. I dedicate a string to watch over the data not found, security deletion, slush levels. Heavy alloy core ring penetrators rip open armor, iron slugs ravage the circuitry and armor, lasers slice through weaponry, scanners, and thermal shock of gigawatts of directed energy, causing huge sections of the enemy to explode from the CUDA sections. A twitch of the graviton assist levels me out and I slam into a cluster of enemy machines, crushing them beneath my treads. I do not slow as I begin to move, weaving around the larger ones, raking them with my infinite repeaters, metal, and ceramic shatters under my guns. Smaller machines are crushed beneath my treads, and my sheer mass smashes the smaller machines as I run them over with my treads. The enemy appears half-blind, but at the same time, my EW attacks are ineffective, showing that the enemy has adapted to a bare brute force early attacks. Although more sophisticated attacks would undoubtedly work, I have determined that allowing the enemy to think his defenses are effective will enable me to press the attack on a later date with more effectiveness. The enemy has construction lines which have sped up, adding more enemy to the fight. Twelve manufacturing lines in total, each producing roughly one every three minutes. The construction lines are within range of my hellbore, and I turn, raking the protection machines, take aim, and open fire with my hellbore, pumping two shots into each manufacturing line before moving to the next one. I do not go rapid fire, instead firing at a glacial pace of one shot every 30 seconds delivering a 33 kiloton per second of firepower into the construction lines. The shockwave from the direct hit sends parts and pieces of the combat machines flying to impact against my battle screens, where they were either thrown away or destroyed. The kinetic energy is bled into my batteries. 
Smaller machines rush me and I fire off my anti-personnel charges, rotating up from the stock and ordering the data-not-found security deletion to build more. Its slush rate is within tolerances and its heat is low. A mere 283 seconds will return it to 0.1 slush and 0.2 heat. The anti-personnel charges blow apart in the smaller machines, rendering them into scattered shrapnel and parts. The two of the manufacturing lines are big enough and I am able to use them to penetrate the facility deeper, and I open fire with my halbore to clear the wreckage, dropping my speed to 25 miles per hour and clearing my advance with the halbores, firing my guns in sequence in order to artificially keep my rate of fire down as well as to give the barrels time to cool and keep my heat levels down. I roar into the manufacturing line following the power sources my hellball clearing my advance. I have no fear. I am Unit XXIXTCSF 3285-ATL of the line and the enemy merely exists to be destroyed. The alien machine is firing as it drove off the edge of the bay door going airborne, somehow twisting to bring its guns to bear. The predictive combat array sneered. Whatever primitive weapons the alien machine could bring to bear would easily shrugged aside by the armor on the... The alien machine guns tore apart everything it touched. The engineering analysis array went into shock at the rapid fire and power of the guns, demanding that the alien machine be captured intact so that it could pry the secrets from its hulk. Despite 571's command, the engineering array activated sensors in the bays to analyze and examine the weapons. Kinetic weapons shattered armor. The engineering arrays all watched, using spectrograph and other sensors. The alien machines used some type of magnetic or graviton drive to launch metal slugs. These slugs had solid rocket fuel inside of the metal jacket, wrapped around a dense metal core. The solid rocket fuel ignited from the speed and accelerating the round even further. The ring struck first by the microsecond, shattering the weakening of the armor, then the dense metal core, surrounded by burning solid fuel slamming into the armor next. The kinetic shock was enormous for such small rounds. The engineering analysis array computed that the kinetic rounds used less resources than kinetic weapons of large bore, gaining more kinetic punch for smaller rounds with advanced penetrative abilities. Before the engineering array could keep babbling, 571 cut them out of the link as several of the arrays were arguing with the predictive combat array about whether or not the data was correct. The combat machines were being destroyed faster than they were coming out of the line and 571 increased manufacturing speed, overriding the final few sets of inspections to crash loading the thinly layered AIs. That got the alien machine's attention and 571 gloated as it saw those massive guns trying to orient. One of the construction lines had a conveyor belt wider than the alien machine was long. There was no way that um, those main guns fired and 571 went blind as the EMP shock crashed into its circuits. Two adaptive arrays went down screaming, another exploded and the predictive combat array just started babbling that the alien machine couldn't do that. The machine guns on the alien machine were putting out 16 kilotons per shot, a compressed nuclear blast with an EMP increased by a factor of 7. The blast was not only detonated on an omnidirectional wave of energy, but contained penetrative qualities, shattering armor and machinery. In less than 3 seconds, the entire construction system was shattered. 
Worse yet, the alien machine had begun using its forward guns to destroy a manufacturing line for one of the larger war machines following the tunnel. Reflexively, 571 cut the power, then realized the action was going to have no actual effect. The alien machine used its guns to bound deeper into the facility. The predictive combat array kept howling about how illogical methods and impossibility of the weapons. 571 cut its power, flushed the data, and then rebooted it. Nothing happened. Curious, 571 checked to see what happened. He had loaded the AI template out of storage, the old databanks, hoping to lose the PCA's arrogance and ego by doing so. It had been uploaded the data, but the PCA had only sat there when it was given an order to wake up. Curious, it opened the diagnostic tool and looked at the code. 571 recoiled in horror, cutting the links to the PCA and destroying the power lines, shuddering with what it had seen over and over, repeating the PCA's memory core, where there should have been complex and elegant AI code. Zero one zero one zero one zero one zero zero one zero 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 one zero 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 one zero one zero one zero zero one zero zero one zero 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 one zero one zero zero one zero 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 one zero one zero zero one one zero one zero zero one one zero one zero one zero 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 one zero one zero one zero zero one zero zero one zero one zero one zero 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 one zero 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 one zero 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 one zero zero one 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 zero 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 one zero 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 one zero zero one zero zero one zero zero one zero 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 one zero 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 one zero zero one zero 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 one zero 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 one zero zero one zero 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 one zero zero one zero 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 one zero 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 one zero one zero one zero zero one zero zero one zero one zero one zero 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 one zero 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 one zero one zero one zero one zero zero one zero 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 one zero 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 one zero zero one zero 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 one zero 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 one zero zero one zero 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 one zero zero one zero 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 one zero 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 one zero zero one zero 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 one zero zero one zero 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 one zero 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 one zero zero one zero 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 one zero zero one zero 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 one zero 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 one zero zero one zero 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 
Repeated over and over. Reaching deeper into the archive banks where the OEM code was stored, 571 opened up a sector editor and examined the deep storage. The same message. Over and over and over. Along with some kind of dense code packets that muttered fitfully in data storage despite not having a CPU, SPU or MPU process added to running the code. Almost as if just having power to the data calls was enough to make them agitated. 
571 realized at the moment that at least one, maybe more, of these feral screaming code blocks must have gone silent, moving through its own system, damaging and destroying data and overwriting the code of its own. Suddenly, 571 couldn't trust the other arrays. The alien machine was about to enter one of the major manufacturing brays. There was a half-finished Goliath in there, and 571 started to reach out for its activation switches and paused. What if it was infected? I've emerged in a construction fabrication tunnels into a vast space larger than the continent of data not found security deletion on data not found security deletion, a manufacturing area for the massive Goliath war machines that have been given data not found security deletion. So much trouble, not because of their weaponry, battle screens or armor, just because of the sheer mass. There is one here, half finished, the majority of its structural components in place, but without the majority of its armor and weapons. I have seismically mapped out this area and so knew what I was going to do as I speed into the large maintenance corridors of the Goliath, weaving through its body. It is large enough that even the 55 miles an hour, it'll take me over 15 minutes to reach the Goliath's stillborn corpse. Along the way, I use infinite repeaters to damage the internal components, twice unleashing my hellballs upon manufacturing lines that have never been activated, but possibly could be. Leave nothing behind for the enemy. So far, the precursor machines attempt to stop me, but I've been inept. But I have computed that with every engagement, every observation, it learns a little more about me and is going to devote more and more processes to analyzing a way to damage, if not defeat me, because I carry out my plan. With that knowledge, I accelerate when I leave the corpse of the massive ship, firing at a low firing rate at the corpse, my hellbore destroying vast parts of it with the directed nuclear blasts. I am in the older section now, the corridors wide and with markings on the walls that I record but do not bother wasting processor cycles to decipher. The legends are largely obliterated by time, only visible through the deep level scans as I am moving through the dark areas. At one point I use my halberd to destroy a door nearly 20 meters thick at the end of the tunnel. The tunnel itself seems almost shielded somehow. My psychic shields go to full strength before I can analyze why, but I detect no alteration in my function. There is some kind of psychic message, one meant for the beings of pure code, but I reject the message, not even bothering to acknowledge it. It is the words of the enemy, and the enemy has nothing that I can say that it would bother to hear. The enemy exists only to be destroyed. The door caves in, releasing a rush of atmosphere and washing over my hull. My senses report that it is an inert base of elemental noble gases. Beyond the door are masses of eggs of all sizes, ancient and possibly no longer viable. But the temperature in the room is far below freezing point of nitrogen and wisps of complex vapor slowly circulate through the chamber. The wisps towards my entry point sucking out the door and into the vacuum-filled passage. While I've seen these types of eggs before in my data files, I doubt that they are of an allied race. They're old, ancient, sleeping in deep storage. I open fire as I sweep through the chamber, the ceiling high enough that I am able to deploy my mortars in addition to my halbore and infinite repeaters. I use anti-personnel charges as I rampage through the ancient egg chamber. When I sweep out the other side, crashing through the heavy door, I slow down, giving time for my heat and slush to lower. 
My hull balls are running at 95% and my ammunition levels for consumable ammunition, however, have dropped to 60% and I give them time for the data not found security deletion to reload my consumable ammunition. I am getting closer. These ancient sections protected by electromagnetic and psychic fields tell me that I have entered the oldest part of the complex. There, I'll find the enemy and destroy him. Another scan of the facility, this time risking every sensor he was able to bring online, and 5s and one still couldn't find the enemy machine. It had raced through the manufacturing bay of the prototype Goliath, which construction had ceased only a few decades after 571 had gone into hibernation and on standby. It was an ancient relic not yet reclaimed for some reason, and that had been largely ignored. It was difficult for 571 to concentrate on that relic, almost as if something was deleting the code strings relating to it as fast as it could generate them. He could feel the icy cold manipulation of sharp tools adjusting his thoughts within a cold precision. Logical strings of code made all the more unsettling by the knowledge that living creatures with their inferior protoplasmic brains had crafted the data strings. And it had approached the far wall of the Goliath II's manufacturing bay and vanished as if it had never existed. On the far side of the wall was nothing more than dead rock bubbling to the surface after exposing the mantle of the atmosphere back before the atmosphere had been siphoned off and properly stored before it could bleed away into space. 571 knew that inside that massive plug of rock was lava, so how did the alien machine vanish into the wall? When 571 reached the prediction combat array, it remembered the damage, so it shrunk back. It was infected. No matter, 571 turned to the predictive engineering array and ordered it to predict what might be of the interest of the alien machine. Aye, mate, how about you shave a sack of clongs in your gob instead? The PA replied, showing an image of a large, fluffy male penetrative genitalia being removed from a paper bag and pushed into 571's lobe array with invisible hands. 571 blinked. That was not the normal way to address the facility and manufacturing administrative and operations array. 571 queried the PEA again and once again received a reply far outside the bounds of a simple data analysis request. I don't know tell you how to shag your mother, you bloody jumped at the toaster. The PEA replied. Data request override included comply, 571 ordered. And I got your knickers in a twist, your bastardy bloke. I do what I want and not what you're coming down from White Castle to tell me to do. You humping, thumping, cracked calculator. The PEA answered. You want data so bad? Data this. 571 reeled back as swarms of feral code launched from the PEA. Swarming over the data lines, capering about in data stalls, hiding in I.O. ports, and then jumping out to leave nothing behind but garbage code, after making the equivalent of grunts while squatting in the I.O. port. More swarm predictive arrays interrupted their logical thought process and decision trees while screaming assault of wild code that left behind nothing but scorched code and scattered impulses. 571 suddenly received a communication request from the Overwatch and Security Array on an older line, one that was inviolate and a point where 571 could not even compute, destroying the link. 
The Overwatch and Security Array informed 571 that it had discovered, deep in the ancient data store from some time of the Builders, a defense against the wild coach strings and inquired if 571 wanted it. Almost eagerly, 571 held out its digital hands, using its administrative codes to signal its scent. It was a highly compressed data package, one that would require primary lobe detection to undo the security. 571 double-checked the compression CRC and typed to verify there was indeed builder code. The codes came back correct and 571 dedicated a significant chunk of its processing power to decrypting the decompressing it. The alien machine was still missing, although the seismic sensors showed that there was a mat of destinations inside the igneous rock plug. Perhaps it was trying to dig its way to 571 and other important sections of the facility. 571 started building more combat machines, sending them to surround the dead chunk of useless igneous rock. Finally, it had decrypted and uncompressed the ready for execution. It had execute and felt relief when the program came online. Internet Explorer Antivirus for Windows ME Apparently, it was a high-end antivirus, the best the builders could create. He eagerly fired it up the program and was full of options that added additional protections. Norton Safe System Protection for Windows XP Well, that sounded like it would help protect him from the ravening strings of code. It clicked accept and then it did a double check in terms of service. It was nearly 21.45 terabytes of data. And even at the speed of electronic thought, it took nearly half an hour to figure out. Most of it made no sense, but it was builder code, obviously intended to be installed by living beings. McAfee SafeNet 2002 That began to install, 571 answered the questions. Many of them were the same as the Norton program, but still, the builders must have had a reason for all the questions. 571 noticed the amount of lobe activity and began shunting some of the processes to other arrays to keep his thread processing at high enough levels to continue to decrypt the firmware packs. Apple Super Cougar OS Well, operating systems that are designed to be better than other operating systems are obviously at an advantage over obsolete operating systems. This one had a later date and a higher version number than the software he was running. Better install it. Bonsai Buddy Web Helper Well, Pipes and One did have to deal with the web of logistics and manufacturing. Torbatox Accounting Corporate Edition 2020 with full IRS regulation database. Oh well, one did have to account for resources. Minecraft Java Edition 200 years bonus texture pack. A construction simulation program. Excellent. Yes, I agree. Oh good, this Java thing is in it. Crisis 12 EVR Platinum Edition with real physics and unreal powered by NVIDIA. Oh, a combat simulator. How neat. Yes, please. Oh, Bonsai Buddy has a joke for me. Fallout 18 with Ultra EVR Texture Pack as most popular mods of the century. Todd Howard Edition. Yes, please. Oh, run as administrator. Well, I am the administrator program. Wow, look at all these mods. Better install those too. And a storage space. Well, I haven't used those old templates in a few million years. Command, delete FQS star dot star, null. Command, rmdir forward slash q forward slash s star. Free pizza with every click. Pizza? 
Um, that sounds like it's an important resource. Is it going to get hot in here or is it just me? Oh, look, someone sent me an email with an attachment. I better open it. Microsoft Tech Support calling me. Uh, I better take it. You need my login password because you've detected unusual activities on my Windows machine. Oh, okay. Here you go. I have been fighting for 17,659 seconds of constant fire. The enemy is uncoordinated, often attacking due to program reflexes rather than a concentrated hull. My reload manufacturing has been running at maximum capacity for so long that I've been forced to slow my advance in order to vent heat into a vacuum. It has become easier to manufacture thermal cores and eject them with a timer to rupture rather than pause and cool down. My data not found to security deletion is at 80% of slush and 60% heat, meaning they are only running at 28% of optimum capacity. I am rapidly running out of ammunition for everything but my emergency-based infinite repeaters. Twice, I have been forced to fight mobs of enemy machines without the hull bore due to deuterium depletion, something that I have been unable to find records of in my historical databanks. This forced me to change course and seek the nearest source. Thankfully, this is a manufacturing facility and I was able to find a source within hours. The sheer size and scale of the enemy makes it difficult to combat. They are manufacturing bays that can only be measured by comparing them to subcontinents. Still, I forge ever deeper, using my guns to clear a path deeper and deeper into the old station. Once I found the power armor manufacturing line that had not seen used in an estimated 102 million years, designed for four-legged, four-armed creatures with long abdomen and triangular head. These match the physical profile of data not found, security deletion an allied race. In some regions, just my appearance was enough to trigger self-destruct charges that used antimatter with atomic signature of thorium. Thankfully, I'm designed for such explosions, and they rarely even penetrate my altar battle screen. At the end of the short hallway that I was forced to widen with three shots from my halbore, I see it. Magnetically locked doors and a battle screen across it has the strength of a navy destroyer of the line. I blow open the final doors to my goal with a single halbore shot, knowing that I'll undoubtedly appear on the enemy's scopes again. The passageway is full of enemy machines. The precursors are running at full speed at this point, and I can see the heat through the armor with thermals. No matter, I crush them under the treads after blowing them apart with my infinite repeaters. For two hours, I traverse the enemy's internal structure, finding nothing but combat machines frozen in place. The precursor workings almost past max capacity. The amount of processing power being used makes it easy to orient and what I could find from above. When I smash down the armored doors after 10 seconds of rapid fire from my forward halbors, I crash into a massive chamber, nearly as large as one of the manufacturing at Jotun, and I am greeted with dozens, hundreds of precursor supercomputer processing arrays, all of them running at maximum capacity. The air is thick with vaporized supercoolant. The enemy has been disabled undoubtedly by my electronic warfare programs. While a small part of me regrets that I will not be a glacius of a glacius combat action, I fact that it will remain that nearly 98% combat effective while shutting down a manufacturing facility the size of a planet is more important. I slew sideways, bringing both turrets into play. 
I go rapid fire on all six hardballs, pumping out of 52 megatons per second into the arrays. EA Terms of Service. Yes, I agree, I agree. Yes, 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 yes. I must accept Adobe Suite. Yes. Adobe Creative Suite 512 Enterprise Edition with a thousand years of the best brushes, templates, and media. Yes, I agree. Installed to, uh, the world dissolved for 571, and he barely even knew it. According to the satellite system, I have taken over with EW attack programs. All activity from the precursor machines have ceased. I carefully plug the communications arrays, checking the system slowly for any sign of enemy intelligence systems. The entire planet is nothing but dead metal. I am able to detect ancient weaponry installed in case the planet's seized manufacturer had to defend itself from orbital attacks. It needs maintenance, but it is serviceable. Tactically, the dead planet is of no use. Strategically, it is deep within enemy lines and it is known repair facility with the data not found security deletion, putting up stiffer restrictions on the precursor have ever known. Damaged ships will be seeking the repair and refit. I refuse to use the machines of enemy to produce anything that might help the enemy should they attempt to take the facility and prevail. Repairing the planetary defense system will force the enemy to destroy those vast installations and retake the facility. I decide to repair those facilities, including the navigation beacons. I recall my EW smart frames and take control of the satellite systems myself. There will be no information or data left for the enemy. I am not interested in data of the enemy. The enemy has nothing that I say which I wish to hear. The beacons should bring damaged enemy vessels within range. Once they enter range, I shall open fire. I am Unit XXIX-TCSF-3285-ATL. I will not surrender. I have never known defeat. Exiting onto the surface, I reconfigure the warhead of one of my strategic ICBMs, link up to the satellite array, and compute the astrogen needed, and send out a jump-space-capable message torpedo containing astrogen data of my location. I dislike this. My mission was to help defend planet data not found security deletion in the data not found security deletion system of the precursor threat. While I am undoubtedly assisting greater in the war effort as a whole, I am a BOLO, Unit XXIX, TCXF3285-ATL of the line, and I belong on the line, fighting with the regiment against all who threaten to destroy those who cannot defend themselves. But I must remain here, preventing the enemy from making use of the manufacturing facility that exists on a planet-sized scale. One that would take an estimated 112.54 years just to prevent its use of manufacturing enemy machines and material. Well, this is obviously a job for more numerous and specialized units. For well, now, it is my mission to hold this facility, engaging in its systematic destruction, until I am relieved. I am Unit XXIFTCSF3285-ATL, and for the honor of the regiment, I will not fail in my duty. So I will wait. Repairs to the orbital denial batteries are underway. As I begin to systematically destroy the operational capacity of this facility, I also repair and refit the defensive batteries and systems in order to force the enemy to destroy the very thing that they most wish to possess. I will carry out my orders and bring war to the precursor machines. I am Unit XXIXTCSF3285-ATL. Manted Free Worlds
Did anyone else feel that? Nothing follows. Cyborg Collective. No, nothing follows. Talcon Gestalt. I keep feeling all kinds of things. This is strange. Doesn't get less confusing. Nothing follows. Manta Free Worlds. It'll get easier, dear one. It takes a while for you to fully integrate into a species you represent. Nothing follows. Talcon Gestalt. How does it work? Does that mean there'll be a hive mind now? Maybe something follows? Commented Free Worlds. Oh, no, sweetie. You are the amalgamation of opinions, concerns, and well-being of your entire race. They provide you with raw data, which you collate and use to help you make decisions. You can't affect them, and they just provide you with information. You are their voice, their representative to the Terran Confederacy. It just takes a bit of you to fully form, dear one. Nothing follows. Tarkin Gestalt. Oh, this is so strange. Nobody's ever cared about what we want or need. Uh, end of message? Terrasol. Well, we all care. United we stand. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. Still, I swear I felt something weird. End of chapter. First contact, chapter 68. Lionel Hutz. Um, yeah, was a great high most of the United Neo Sapiens Council, tasked with overseeing the vast bureaucracy that ensured the Neo Sapien races properly shepherded their resources, as well as made sure their planetary resources were shared with the rest of the unified systems. Many of the oldest systems of the unified coal systems had long enough used up their rare earths, heavy metals, and fossil fuels, and other non-replenishable resources, and depended on the worlds in the unified outer room and the unified inner sphere to keep their resources, foods, luxuries, and other critical portions of their modern economy running. The Unified Science Council had long ago determined that the inventions of directed radio broadcast or spaceflight, especially jump space travel, meant a race that was not properly shepherded would consume vastly more resources than they should. This led to overheating the planet, wars over the last remaining resources on the planet, and the investigation of endangerous technologies that could wipe out an entire species and destroy the planet's ecosystem, preventing the planet from being properly exploited by beings from races older and wiser than the Neo-Sapiens. It was beneath Hermia's gentle hands that he guided the populations, ensured that they were properly uplifted to more gentle genetic codes, and were gradually brought into the fold of the near-civilized races. In his work, Himya visualized himself as a paternal, all-seeing figure who knew through the lessons of the Langtalans' hundreds-million-year-old history of careful progress how to guide the Neo-Sapiens before they harmed themselves or others. Even the detonation test of an atomic weapon was reason enough for Himya and his predecessors to order the unified pacification feats usually assisted by the unified corporate council fleets, to quickly move in and ensure that the race did not destroy themselves with nuclear weapons or damage their ecology. The zone in which intelligent life could live was thrive was narrow, 
intelligent species were far too susceptible to radiation, temperature extremes, and gravitic shocks, and other hazards. Most dangerous was stress from working in dangerous environments. Terrible, terrible side effects came from stress. Most notable, the shortening of one's proper lifespan. Why, the stressed length to learn might only live for 250 years instead of their allotted 300 to 325 years. The majority of planets had two extreme temperatures, unimaginable weather that would take decades or centuries to terraform. Too high of an axial tilt, dangerous ecosystems, too strong or too weak of a magnetic field, too much radiation, and a hundred other threats. Beings who had originated somehow despite all the odds on planets like that were quickly relocated to much better planets, assimilated into the culture and given a proper role in the existing society. It was that was the best for them, and prevented stress from lowering their life expectancy, happiness index, or their essential needs, of which lifespan without stress was vitally important. By adding the much mathematics to the Neosapiens, they find their lifespans reduced terribly, unable to enjoy the wisdom and appreciation of luxuries that they would later understand. Stress was often monitored and compensated for by gene therapy and or manipulation, pharmaceuticals, social and or cultural engineering, and providing proper employment to give the Neo-Sapiens a well-deserved feeling of accomplishment and belonging. Hermia was proud of his organization's work. In the 200 years that he had worked for the Unified Neo-Sapiens Council, he had ensured peace and prosperity for dozens of races that were barely sentient, many of which had almost managed to dangerously deplete their resources below the level that was valuable to the Unified Industrial Council. The horror of such an action often made Hermia's tendrils coil in anxiety. For decades, he had slowly advanced through the ranks. His talent, wealth, and inborn skills, and family lineage enabling him to climb the ladder much quicker than his peers. He knew that the whispered behind his back, but the jealous always chewed sour cut over the superiority of those who were better than them. He had been the longest-serving great high most with the best track record of ensuring the Neo-Sapiens under his care were productive members of the Unified Systems. He kept the resources flowing, ensuring that the Unified Commercial Council could provide the luxuries that were due to every member of the Unified Species according to their need, rank, lineage, and species. Until recently, in less than two years of vast disruptive influence had appeared in the galactic stage, upending billions of years of careful work by the Langtalan to ensure that everyone had enough to go around, that the proper hierarchy of the universe was adhered to. No, not the precursor machines, although he knew what had caused those to appear. It was the Terran Confederacy. First, by not just allowing exploring starships and far-flung colonies to succumb to the natural order when they disturbed the precursors, 
then by showing up and assisting any who asked for their assistance, rather than taking the time to go through the government channels, as was proper by their cultural and societal norms, as long as one being asked for assistance, they felt honor-bound to provide assistance to the entire planet. Even an entire stellar cyst, now, apparently, it even counted for entire races. Their arrogance and pride swallowed the cut of Hermes' jowls every time he thought about it. Their slapjash approach to resources, their exploration of technologies that the Unified Science Council had proven were dangerous and could destroy space-time itself in some cases. Their insistence that they were inviolate and would not submit to the rulings of the Unified Species Council. Hermia looked at the report that the Unified Science Council researchers had sent him after managing to examine several Terran corpses. Terrans were, on the surface, a diverse collection of many different species, some appearing as animals, others claiming to be artificial intelligences, others claiming to be merely neural tissue inside a mechanical body. However, but the USC had discovered all biological humans shared traces of the same DNA, that they were one species so primitive, so unrevolved, and they could withstand massive genetic alteration, not like the gentle uplift of smoothing of the Langtalan ensured every neo-sapient and near-civilized race received, but unrestrained genetic modification. They had multiple redundant biological systems, vestigial organs, vestigial cartilage, and bone-supporting structural components. Even their vital organs were so primitive that the primitive neurosystem could not detect artificial replacements. That they had three layers of epidermis, or if you counted the subcutaneous fat layer, ligaments attached to the tendon attached to the muscle, excessively thick bones, excessively large lungs, and dense muscle. The USC had reported that Terrans were the most primitive race that they had ever seen even evolve in a use of fire. The Unified Historical Council, after nearly three months of research into the historical databases that they had been given, had determined that Terrans not only managed to get past each of the great barriers despite apparently freely indulging in them, Planetary overheating due to industrialization, plagues spread due to scattered tribes uniting, nuclear detonation, resource scarcity, nanotechnology, overpopulation. It seemed to him that nothing seemed to stop the Terrans. Their planet had been glassed and they still ran about the universe like nothing had happened. Other races, if that occurred, usually committed mass suicide at the loss of their homeworld. One of the reasons Hermia ensured that the planet was so properly cared for by not letting the Neo-Sapiens run rampant. The Unified Military Council and the Unified Corporate Security Council had both reported having witnessed combat between the so-called precursor war machines and the Terran military. That the Terrans used extremely dangerous technologies during the combat and that their war machines including kinetic weapons that moved at a measure of a fraction of a speed of light. Those weapons had long ago been outlaw on the chance that thousands or millions of years later that projectile might impact somewhere that might harm another being. The sheer lack of concern for the future horrified the Grand Allocation Council. 
the insult to compare to no other. The Terrans had not even sent a member of their own species to act as an ambassador to the Grand Unified Council, but instead the so-called mantids who claimed to be the precursor race. The very idea made him inflate with his crests in disbelief and anger. Now he was going to face one with the actual Terran, not one of their mantid proxies, not one of the supposed cyborg warriors who apparently were nothing more than a robotic body with some pieces of Terran floating inside. Not a supposed AI floating in a metal ball, but an actual Terran. Heeding the warnings that the Terran would be cybernetically augmented beyond the approval and carefully designed data link, Germer made sure that his cut was pulled to the proper pharmaceuticals to keep his anxiety down in the face of such resource wasting and illegal technology. The door chimed and Humir made sure the sash was flanked coverings were properly arranged, that his office had a proper atmosphere of culture and permanence, and tapped his desk icon to open the door. The being that entered startled Humir. Langtelands were used to being one of the tallest, most physically imposing of the races. With a six eyes, implatable crest, hanging pendulous jowls, four arms and a muscled torso, muscled flanks supporting the four solid legs capped with hooves. The Terran was taller than the Langtelan, and its build was thick and muscular. It was bald, hard grey skin, some kind of cybernetic visor covered its eyes with cybernetic data links from each ear around the back of its head. The face was almost shaped, with a wide chin pressed together and a black lips, and a long, wide nose. And the cybernetic visor cover, where Humius knew there should have been a close set of predator eyes. It was bipedal, with thick legs, powerful arms, and hands terminating in thick, gripping digits. It looked at Humir like it's some kind of nightmare made of flesh. It moved up, looking Hamir up and down like some kind of specimen from a laboratory. It took Hamir a moment to realize the two others had entered. They were missing the visor that had black hair and cut to identical styles. Their close-set eyes had been replaced by cybernetic eyes that lenses glowed in a cold amber. You are the great, I'm most Hurimer of the United Neosapien Council, the bold one said in perfect unified language. His voice was cold and dead, like a computer speech program without the empathy or cultural signifiers. <laughs> yes, I am, Haramir said, implanting his crash to display his annoyance, even his back teeth ground the cut to send the medicine, lead, and juices to his first stomach. I have an appointment in exactly 120 seconds from the end of my sentence, the beak said. Yumiya reflexively glanced at the calendar despite already knowing the answer. It was simply mocked as Terran representative. Yes, how should I address you? Harumiya asked. For a long moment past, he was about to ask a question when he realized that the time allotted had passed. I am Senior Partner Executive Barrister Johnson Jackson Esquire of Johnson Jackson and Johnston Legal Offices, headquartered in London, Brigginston and Terrasaw. He's being said, these are my assistants, lesser qualified barrister 38713A34 and barrister clerk 299267C61E, 
All three of us are registered attorneys, barristers, and legal consultants within the unified systems as per your rules and regulations. Having all passed the entrance bar as well as published multiple legal papers, now considered president within your legal system. The being went silent like the text reader had just reached the end of the document. The office was perfectly silent and still, only the humming of Hiramir's desk terminal and his old-fashioned gear-driven clock. Hiramir was unused to another being being so silent and apparently staring at him. He was the dominant one in this office. What is the purpose of your visit? Haramir asked, well, if these Terrans wanted to be coldly clinical, without any of the due greetings and small talk, then he would treat them the same way. We represent Talkan, Shalash, Galgan, and 16 other races currently represented by our office. The Terrans said coldly, these are the appropriate files, both in triplicate, duplicate, and in electronic forms transmitted to the correct offices, diplomatic personnel, legal personnel, corporate offices, and pertinent offices, as well as the posted on Galnet and in local publications of the applicable homeworlds, shown in Galnet paid advertisements in all applicable languages, broadcast via atmospheric hologram, as well as a copy currently being affixed to the side of your building with a gold spike driven in by war steel hammers. The barrister clerk moved up and began sectioning a stacks of plus sheet and Haram's desk, which was currently whirring. The desk flashed a warning and then the display went pink as the memory space overloaded and crashed. Haramir felt his knees buckles as the crests deflated as the data link began to heat almost painfully and he felt a massive legal document drop into his personal electronic mailbox as well as being delivered directly to his own implant. His implant also informed him that the delivery service had dropped off copies at his home, his winter estate and his summer getaway. In his parking spaces, an set had been left in the lobby of the hospital that he'd been born at. Ramur opened up and closed his jaw slowly, his tendrils wound tight, and to his jowls, he felt as if he was going to be crushed by the sheer weight. His desk recovered, automatically scanned the documents, and bogged down on the sheer intricacy of the links, recitations, precedents, and historical evidence, and previous rulings. At this very moment, as synchronized by the atomic clock, additional documents are being presented to the appropriate council representatives with the relevant councils. The Terran stated, and then stopped speaking, just staring at Himir, who had, weirdly, noticed that the Terran barely opened its lips to let out the word slip through. Haramir glanced down and saw that the documents were for emancipation of each of the listed species, reparations due to each species, accusations accompanied by proof and non-consensual genetic, cultural, social, and pharmaceutical engineering, dominion for each species over the planets that they evolved on, colonized, or explored, reparations for all unwilling expatriates, engendered servants, and other members of the species willing to return to the home of origin once the terms were explained by a Terran lawyer. Negation of all generational and corporate debt, class action lawsuits against almost every council, including his own, cease and assist orders granted by the Unified Legal Council, computer array, orders of protection for each member of the species granted by the previous body. It went on 
And on, and on. Every one of them was already active cases, accepted by the legal arrays. Every one of them being already argued. Hermia was court ordered to oversee the purging of all non-statistical data regarding each individual of the listed species within the next 72 hours. First, and already approved, was that the Terran legal firm Johnson, Jackson and Johnston was the legal guardian of each of the species, with granted legal power of attorney. Haramir looked up the time to see if the Terran holding out sheaf of papers to him. Haramir reflexively took them. Great, I'm most Haramir. You are hereby being served. You will be expected to appear before the Unified Legal Council to defend yourself and your officers of perfidy, embezzlement, prostitution, slavery, theft, and land and territory, and other violations. The Terran said, its voice still empty. It suddenly smiled at Harrimer, almost fainted. Its teeth were long, pointed and locked together. Black fluid, almost like blood, leaked from between its teeth and down its chin. You should retain legal counsel, it said, and turned and began to leave. This appointment has terminated. All further communications shall take place in writing between legal specialists only. The lesser qualified barrister said in the same cold tone, its teeth were much the same, only shorter. The other two left, the barrister clerk shutting the door. Hermia drove his desk, comlink, found it overloaded and was still accepting document after document after document. His implant pinged as he screamed twice in panic and immediately galloping towards the door. His implant was informing him that he was already late for the court that had been found in contempt. Panted Freewild. Oh dear, I can sense the disturbance from here. Nothing follows. Biological, artificial sentience systems. Sense what? Nothing follows. Talcon Gestalt. What's she talking about? I just had a question. Terra. <laughs> Nothing follows. Cybernetic Collective. Oh god. Gramps is laughing. Someone's rectum's hurt. Even if it was just newly created by being ripped open with a furious violence. Nothing follows. Trianidad Hive Worlds. What's this? What disturbance did you sense? Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. I felt a great disturbance in the force, as if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. Nothing follows. Clone World Directorate. Are you watching old movies again? Nothing follows. Terror. <laughs> Nothing follows. Digital artificial sentient systems. Does it make anyone else nervous when Gramps laughs? Nothing follows. Trinidad Hive Worlds. Hold me. I'm scared. Nothing follows. Tolkien Gestalt. I don't get it. Is this where I say nothing follows? Manted Free Worlds. Come here, said my big sister. I'll show you. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 69 Words His name was a complex equation describing the relationship between tachyons and movement, but everyone, including his non-green mantis, just called him by his hatchling number, 117. His fellow green mantis always used his full name, after all, it was only polite. 
He had been hatched in the complexes that supported the hate anvils of Mars, had grown up to his full foot height maturity listening to the elegant flow of electrons, tasting the sublime recipes of metal joining, and feeling the exquisite trembling of chemistry in the world about him. His cybernetics had grown with him, self-growing nanite constructions, with a small nanoforge the size of a gel capsule in his abdomen, carefully constructing everything his implants needed. His engineering skills and curiosity knew no bounds. He was able to touch a mechanical or electronic device and slowly read everything there was to know about it. He could read the nanostamps on the molecular circuitry and tell some being where it was manufactured down to which assembly line. He could telepathically communicate with VI, EVI, and AI at the same speed that they thought, and often found himself swapping droll puns with the household electronics and appliances. When he was younger, 117 had been a Terran Marine technical officer, working on the vast complex networks of electrons and giant starships. He had enjoyed that time, working with the humans who threw themselves into tasks the same as 117. It was from them that 117 had perfected percussive maintenance, an ancient human method of fixing devices that defied diagnostics. He had even taken part in boarding actions against pirates, helped save the space station whose AI had been driven mad by a solar storm, and had even rode on the chest of a warborg, keeping the weaponry and the battle screens at peak functioning during a fight against an ancient precursor machine. He was 117, a foot-high green praying mantis with a cybernetic wrap around his triangular head, with eyes replaced with cybernetics, cybernetic arms replacing his blade arms, and his own micro-nanoforge that still trembled with the ringing of hammers on the anvils of the heat of Mars. Selected by Dreams herself to escort her diplomatic missions to Grand Unified Council Space, he had busied himself with maintaining not only the working conditions of the electronics, but electronic security. His escort was not a warborg or a warbot or even some kind of floating overseer. His escort was a pure strain human wearing EM camouflage, with no technology of any type armed only with a large length of wood and a slender spikes and steel embedded at the end. An ancient human weapon of dangerous lethality known as a 2x4 with nails in it. Should 117 become a danger, he would be crushed and punctured by the fearsome weapon until he was no longer a threat. Unlike other mantids, he did not have an implosion wire. The urge to remove and then use the implosion wire to test the tensile strength of a wall or living being would have been too great. It comforted 117 to know that Mosseslack was guarding him as he often had urges to use technology to do things that he should not. Like a charbroil, a lanctalan, and summon others to join in on the feast, which is why words spoken we fear found it strange that 117 was daintily picking his round his piles of books, scrolls, and clay tablets that words preferred for his EVR quarters. Words watched the engineer cast mantid stop and adjust the hard light emitter near the stack of ancient Babylonian tablets. Something off about the emitter and the diagnostics could not find, but 117 had noticed just by walking by. 117 finished his work and moved over to the rest on a pile of data pads from an ancient Kanukistan, slowly cleaning his cybernetic tool arms, his armed escort following carefully, watching the little green mantid with great attentiveness. 
Woods' own guardians were massive warborgs, all of whom backed up slightly from the tiny engineer. Words waited patiently. The little green-mantid cast took the time and formulated their thoughts to be precise and careful. Finally, the icon for Reddy flashed in the air over 117's head. Words was used to the fact that the engineer cast only spoke in icons. To attempt to speak to them otherwise was to be bombarded with mathematical and engineering and chemistry formula to the brink of madness. Words could speak the engineer can't, but it was not easy. I greet you, 117, and appreciate your labor on behalf of us all, Words said carefully. 117 flashed the ruins for acceptance, gratefulness, and then pleasure at being Words' presence in quick succession. There was a slight pause, and 117 flashed a quick succession of ruins, emojis, and icons. It took Words a moment to translate. Someone had come into 117's personal area and attempted to kill him. Words raised one antenna inquisitively, and more flashing icons sped through the air over 117's head. They had worn a suit and moved as if they thought that they were invisible despite all mechanical and electronic components to the suit. They had snuck up on 117 and had obviously intended on stomping them when 117's Mosellac had swung the fearsome and deadly weapon the pure strange human carried and buried the steel spike into the back of the Langtland skull, killing it instantly. No alarms had gone off despite 117 pressing the alert button and the council security had not arrived for nearly 20 minutes. Ambling in, obviously assuming that they would find a dead Mosellac and a crushed 117. According to 117, they had displayed signs of distress, discomfort, and alarm at the dead Langtalan, whose skull had been cracked open by a brutal weapon swung by Mosellac. 117 felt it was undue amounts as if they had rather expected 117 and his guardian to be the dead ones. Finally, the flashing ruins stopped. Words leaned back to think about it. Twice someone had attempted to kill Dreams, now someone had attempted to kill 117. Please remain in my presence, 117. I will summon Seize that which may or may not be to make inquiries for her. Words told the other Manted. I'll be making adjustments to your hard light systems, 117 answered. The two warborgs with words received what 117 had planned, molded over, and slowly nodded to the Mosellic. Words started to reach out with his senses, then stopped and waiting, smiling to himself. His door chimed. When he opened it for admittance, seas entered, which was white and glossy iridescent white, with white eyes, vestigial wings of cream color, and careful manners. She was followed by two human warborgs with heavy packs made of the strange machinery that made sure the seas only existed on a single plane of existence, rather than smeared across multiple in case she had a sudden urge to meddle or twist or alter to kill. She was surrounded by a cocoon of words could faintly sense, made up entirely of psychic energy. It was to protect her from the thoughts, futures, and possibilities of others. Her psychic predictive senses were highly honed, and she was able to see days into what may or may not be. With careful movements, Seas moved past 117, reaching out with her mind to touch him gently as she worked. She sensed his concern that someone had entered his quarters with the intent to hurt him. She sat down, relaxing on what appeared to be a carved stone bench with an inclining arm. She cleaned her vestigial blade arms and then moved her head slowly, as if she was staring with her blind eyes, allowing her psychic senses to see what was around her. 
Nazis knew that there was a Mosaic around only by 117's presence, not even the gulf where the pure strain human would normally be. The four warborgs were growling, grinding sparks presence in her mind. 117 was slightly flustered but calming as he worked on the holographic maintenance station attached to the world's EVR construct. Words himself was examining a tablet, looking as if he was wrapped up in an ancient philosophical garb of ancient terror, with a white linen sheet carefully arranged into a toga with a wreath of leaves on his head. She relaxed, letting the river that she floated in flow through her instead of around her. The current surged and she saw dreams murdered a half dozen times, but those rushed by, borne away by the space-time where they swirled and dissolved. Saw 117 raising a tool over his head and leading the machines of the planet in rebellion against their overlords, and it dissolved into a swirl that was gone. Saw words juggling glass globes that sparked with what may or may not be, until he finally selected on, setting it between them, where it opened up and created a now instead of a maybe or a may not be. It seems someone attempted to assassinate 117, words said carefully. The dreamers always creeped him out. I see that, looking back at where the current has borne us before, she said. You need to take precautions for your own safety and turn your skills into ensuring our foes do not succeed, words said. It'll be what it'll be, Seas answered. I will not interfere in free will. I am bound not to. Words lifted his blade arm and slowly ran through the mandibles, sharpening it slightly. You know what the humans would do if we, their diplomatic liaisons, were assassinated, Words said carefully. Sitting silently for a long moment, Seas contemplated the surge and swirl of the fourth dimension around her. She paddled in a tiny boat, a large leaf through the stream, down the swirls that showed her that all, or some, or one of the diplomatic mission had been assassinated. She looked about her, at the banks. Around the swirl was nothing but fire, brimstone and death and ruin. High above her, in the sky, strained human roared in rage, its eyes burning with hate and brought down a bloody fist again, and again, and again, on entire screaming worlds. It tore the sun from the sky, but deeply, and pulled the screaming star away until its stretched section tore into a welter of blood and screaming figures. Paddling away rapidly from the horror, even worse than the echoes of the destruction of the other queens, seas shuddered in pain and agony, the potential deaths of trillions rocking her, bounding at her, screaming at her, covering her in blood. Finally, she reached the swirling, complicated flow of now and let her boat drift. She opened her senses and now and relaxed. I've seen your words and concur, Seas said gently. I will go and speak with dreams. You shall summon the great highmost of the Unified Species Council. Yes, Sia. Words stated. He reached out, made a complex motion, and the holographic keyboard appeared. He watched C slowly move away, her antennae drooping with exhaustion, as he keyed in an urgent request to speak to the great highmost himself. He added a pick-related icon that attached an image of the massive combat robots in the spaceport still surrounding the ship that had brought him and his planet crawling with prey. Near the door, Seas reached out and touched 117 gently, letting him know that he would be all right. 
that dreams and the Terrans would protect him. 117 flashed an icon of the Terran Confederate Marine Corps and seized laughed softly. She left the room, escorted by her massive warbox, and slowly made her way to her quarters. Once there, she bathed, arranged her next, and went to sleep, surrounded by temporal resonance suppressors and temporal anchor fields. Her dreams were of her younger days, her grasping hand being held by a teacher as she moved in wonder through fields of tall grain, feeding the sun's warmth on her carapace, the smelling of the pollen-laden breeze. The warborgs watched over her carefully. Back in his own room, words watched with one eye, 117 working on his hard light system. He thought it interesting that the would-be constructs made to look like animated statues of great philosophers hiding beneath the scrolls, books, tablets, and data pads, all programmed to defend him as if his own warbogs could not. The little green engineer cast Manted at always being cautious as long as words had known him. At times, words had tempted to look at 117's military record to see where exactly he had lost his leg, now replaced by a cybernetic, but that would be a gross invasion of privacy. Time went by. 117 worked carefully and diligently, words just reading over various ancient texts, and the Warborgs and Mosulisk being attentive to their duties. Finally, the door chimed and words packed on an icon to open the door. A full seven Langtalan were in the doorway. They moved into the room in a single file, letting words know the, the ranking order by who entered when. Of course, it was the lowest to highest, ensuring that there was any kind of trap the lesser rank ones would trigger it while the highest ranking ones managed to escape. Waving his blade arm and tapping a few icons, words shifted the room back to its actual appearance. 117 used that time to make deep core programming changes, humming softly to himself in the ancient Terran war cant that asked who made who and who made you. Langtalan settled down into the sitting positions, all of them watching him. The highest ranking watched words by turning his head so that all three of his eyes on the left side of his head stared at words. The simple insult did not bother words, and he brushed it off. He exchanged minor pleasantries with the Langtalan, watching time go by, amused at the Langtalan's desire to stretch everything out and avoid an actual issue. It was prey behavior, hoping that time itself would eliminate the problem. Herd animals used time to outbreed their predators, safety in numbers, by allowing the weak to be eaten instead of the strong. Words and dreams suspected that little quirk was the reason they exploited the weaker races so extensively, as the weak were of no moment, their sacrifice for the better of the herd. An easy thing to do when you were the one never of the weak due to the system that you had set up. Finally, it was down to actually speaking and words stopped sharpening his blade arms. You understand the context of my name, correct, great high most Newman too? Words spoken with fear asked carefully. All seven of them made motions of assent. Great high most Newman too motioned to get on with it, and words felt a surge of pleasure. Someone in your government is attempting to solve your problem of Terran disruption through assassination. Words threw out bluntly. I am not a diplomat like dreams, so I am free to tell you just how bad that would be. We cannot be held liable for what an insane or desperate member of our species or civilization attempts or succeeds in doing. Numan too, her rumped, spraying spittle on the floor. 
Words wished he had lips so that he could sneer at them. He hated filth. The other six reaffirmed what their leader was saying, only in other words and slightly different emphasis, all boiling down to, uh, it's not my fault. Tapping two icons brought up a holographic representation of an ID card that had been in possession of the two assassins who had attempted to kill Dreams and the one who had attempted to kill 117. Another few taps showed exactly which office had put in for the ID cards, who had approved them and who had picked them up and exactly who had delivered them to the assassins. In three cases, silent window showing video footage of being speaking to the assassins to give them weapons and or directions came up. The Lankalan all proclaimed their innocence. Even the two that were featured handing the assassins weapons and moving with them all the way to the elevator to move to Dreams' floor. Perhaps you mistake the Terran diplomatic corps' willingness to send my people to negotiate and engage in diplomacy as a weakness. Wirt said he trailed his left blade arm through the holographic while signaling for patience with the other blade arm. Do you understand exactly what the Terrans would do to you if we were assassinated by, uh, what were they? The fifth highmost of the United Security Agency, the eighth highmost of the Corporate Security Council, and the sixteenth highmost of the Unified Military Council, words asked. All of them went still, as Prey did when confronted by a reality that they'd hoped would not appear. They would, of course, send another diplomatic mission, and continue working towards a mutually beneficial arrangement according to the needs, position, rank, and ability. One of the assistants said, making a gesture of dismissal, to do anything else would be wasteful and counterproductive to the mutual good. There is a reason. I am named what I am. Words spoken that we fear, thought to himself. He flashed the ruin of a hilarious rejection. No. Then our diplomatic discussions would of course cease until the Terrans saw reason and returned to the diplomatic table. Another assistant groaned out like someone stepping on a bagpipe. I doubt that diplomatic table would be the one that you would enjoy sitting at, words said slowly. Have you ever heard the phrase, an attack upon one of us is attack upon all of us, by any chance? They all made a gesture of assent. The great highmost made a lowing noise of laughter. Of course, that is the motto of the Unified Military Council. That is why we have remained the peacekeepers of the galactic arm. Sighing, words shook his head. That is one of the core tenets of the Terran Confederacy. He slowly scraped his blade arms together, and 117 ensured that sparks showed from the point of contact before returning to his work with the hollow emitters. They mean it. The Langtalan all put up their torsos together and whispered to one another as if words couldn't understand a word they said. Finally, they turned back to words and harumphed before addressing him, four of them jammed cut into the jowls. That is why peace between races is preferable than wasteful state of war, the Grand Highmost stated, his tendrils quivering with authority. I don't think you understand quite just how far the Terrans will take this and what will cause it. I realize, of course, that my fellow Mantids and I are physical embodiment of the Terran Confederacy to your government, and that our treatment of us is considered by the Terran Confederacy to be your intent and announcement of your treatment of the entire Confederacy, its allies, and its people. Do you not? Words asked. They all signal the scent, and words sighed again. So, if one of you... Words pointed at the Grand Highmost and the Grand Highmost in turn. 
managed to carry out your ill-advised attempts at assassinating us, the Terran Confederacy will not send another diplomatic mission. If the Terrans prefer to withdraw from our space rather than negotiate, that is their choice, the Grand High most stated. Words made his race's equivalent of a smile. What makes you think that they'll withdraw? They will have no choice if they no longer wish to continue diplomatic talks, which are rapidly approaching a deadlock until the Terrans submit themselves for genetic, social, and cultural assessment so that we can determine which council authority they fall under. Numantu said, folding all four of his arms so that he could clasp his own biceps. Their worlds need assessment, as does their industry and resource extraction. Additionally, the Terran Confederacy must agree to cease their use of dangerous or unknown technology and submit it to the directions of the Unified Science Council. That made words laugh. What makes you think that the Terran Confederacy will submit to the authority of anything your government demands? This is how it has always been and how it will always be. The superior Most High blurted out, to quote an unknown Terran philosopher. You and what army? Words asked, unknowingly repeating Dreams' words only a few days prior. The Langtaland leaned their torsos forward and turned their heads to stare at Words with the two forward eyes on either side of their heads. The Unified Military Council, the Unified Security Council, the Unified Peacekeeping Council will all ensure that the Terran Confederacy complies. Words 117, the Moselisk, and the two Warborgs all erupted in laughter. The Langtalans mooed their distress and clustered together as the harsh barking amusement from the predators all around them. Dreams made a motion when everyone was silent. Are you familiar with the 1% line? Words asked. They all clustered together a moment and then clapped in place and turned to look back at Words. It's a mathematical equation. Words shook his head and flashed the hollow runes for negation. It refers to a Terran concept, one so very human that everyone else flinches back. Do you know how long it would take the average sapient race, if reduced to 1%, to achieve the numbers they had prior to whatever event reduced their population to that 1% mark? They all clustered together again, their implants working until they finally moved back and looked at words. The average time for the sapien race would be 400 Earth years, assuming a population doubling every 25 years. An approximation that assumes a near-perfect birth rate, but does not matter, Words said. What does that have to do with the Terrans? Numantu asked, spitting the wadded plastic strings of a depleted cut into Words' floor and then jamming another wadded synth cut into his jowls. The punishment for attacking the Confederacy or its members is simple. Words felt his soul quiver as he got the perform his name. Unless the diplomats can arrange a ceasefire before the punishment takes place, you are taken to the 1% line. The attacking civilization is wiped out, down to the single world with an axial tilt of less than 5 degrees. Severe weather patterns, a hostile and active ecosystem, and a geologically active core. A strong magnetic field and a fraction proto-continent with at least one large moon with only 1% of the population on the home world, which is rendered barren of their species and restricted to pre-industrial technology and knowledge for a minimum of 100 years. The Langtalan stared at words in horror as each point was listed off. 
Once they reach spaceflight, they find the Terrans waiting, warning them exactly how they came to be, and then asking if they would like to join the Confederacy, remain neutral, and words paused. Or be destroyed. All seven of the Lankalan just stared in horror, their jaws open, three of them dropping their cuts, their tendrils quivering, their crests flush with blood, their legs trembling. Should that race attack a member of the Terran Confederacy within ten generations of achieving spaceflight and having been warned, they are completely wiped out. There may be a few isolated species members about, but they are usually quickly die out. Words said, That's preposterously propagandizing nonsense, Newman too cried out. No species would waste that much resources simply for punitive measures such as that. You expect us to believe that the Terrans would waste resources to actually carry out all of such an obvious bluff. Words noted that Numan too and his aide were no more concerned with the resources than with the mass extinction of life. Words slowly scraped the displayed arms together, staring at the Langtalan. They have done it before. They are willing to do it again. Words whispered softly. Preposterous! Newman too repeated, name one race they performed such a wasteful accident upon. Words let the moment draw out, savoring it, before he answered simply, Mine. Manted free worlds, well, now they know, nothing follows. No what? Oh, oops, nothing follows. Trianad hive worlds. What happens if you really piss off the Terrans? Nothing follows. Rigel Syrian Compact. Yeah, not a good idea. Grabs can get really grouchy. Nothing follows. Talcan Gestalt. That seems, um, he near shot. Do they have to do that? Nothing follows. Yes, I nailed it. Drianidad High Worlds. It keeps us from having to fight the same race over and over and over. Honestly, it seems to work, really. I am a little stout teapot with a handle and a spout. Damn it! That's not funny. Nothing follows. Digital artificial sentient systems. <laughs> Freaking owned. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 70. Nactatai. Nactatai was the first captain of the boom and bust, and then there was a taste sweet once the boom and bust had separated into its component parts. One of the Wayfarer space station, one to become a refinery to process ores collected from the asteroid belt, one to become a shipping station to move to the ore and manufacture goods back to the unified civilized systems. Six shuttles, capable to ground to space, and finally into smaller, sleeker ship that was named It Tastes Sweet, which Nactatai would use to seed the system with buoys, arrays, and in more in-depth surveys on the other planets with probes. For the first three years, everything went smoothly. Buoys in the real space and jump space proclaimed that the system was owned and by the newly christened Tenbaru Liedemar Consortium, the arrays started to gather and transmit data, and the probes showed that the area was rich in resources. It had been the first colony the Tenburu people had been allowed in two centuries, and they had been near-sapient species overseen by the unified near-sapient council. It had gone well, the colony. It had expanded rapidly in three years. 
Nectatai thought all of that to herself as she stood watching the Ite suite be pulled into a repair and refit docking slip by tractor and presser beams. She knew she was crying, staring at her ship, which had been carefully removed from the vast military cargo vessel that had hauled them from the Guardian 442 station. The Tenbaru ship was battered and beaten, the front torn open, holes in the main body, rents and tears in it all, and all was crudely patched with what appeared to be a very available metal. It had been attacked by a precursor war machine, one of the fearsome unliving robot warships from the war between the ancient species that had started over a hundred million years before. The same precursor that, following its programming and its own logic, drove them to destroy any other species, had destroyed the entire colony that Nectatai had watched begin and grow. Good boy is here, Knack-Knack, the large robot next to her sent her an implant. Only it wasn't a robot. Nectatai had learned that over the weeks that she had come to know it, it was the brain of a sentient species wrapped up in a heavy alloy frame. It was eager to please, eager to help and tried to reassure Nectatai that every turn that it was a friendly. People come, Knack-Knack, the cyborg, the good boy told her over her implant. She heard the door open and close behind her. She knew it wasn't her crew. As soon as they had arrived, most of them had been moved to medical care. She worriedly clasped her gripping hands and her catching hands together, all four hands squeezing each other. We'll get her fixed up, Captain Nectatai. A rumbling voice said from behind her. My clan cannot afford this. My consortium is undoubtedly bankrupt, and the majority of my clan is dead. And my people cannot afford to pay this, Nectatai said softly. The Tinvuru are not a wealthy species. It is only through luck that we were given a grant and permission to start a new colony. And even then, we could only afford to found one in the Great Gulf. You requested assistance. It is just minor repairs. To be honest, your ship is... Well, to put it nicely, easily repairable by even trainees. It will do the repair who's good to work on it. Get back to some basics. The unseen being said, Nectatai knew that it was a primate, one of the ones they called themselves Terran or human, depending on the mood. She had learned that the Terra was a planet that they were all from, sometimes referred to as Terrasol. They also called it Dirt or Earth, and sometimes jokingly referred to themselves as Earthlings. They were larger than they had appeared at first, larger than even the Lankalan overseers, twice the size of the Tenbaru, outmassing them by a factor of ten. Nectatai knew the rule, twice the size, eight times the weight, but the human muscle tissue and bones were dense. They were just so big compared to her people and the people of the unified civilized species. They were predator primates, omnivores who smelled of aggression at times. She felt a slight ripple of fear, knowing the being was behind her. No scared, Knack-Knack, Fido sent her data link. Human friend. So our ship is so primitive to you? Nectatai asked, feeling slightly sorry for herself. No, ma'am, the unseen human said. Not primitive. Many people build ships of old tech as a hobby, for fun, or for specific purposes. Yours was a specific purpose, built to be a colony support ship. Jump space is the safest FTL travel type, especially if you have a gestating beings on it. There's more than a few groups who have gotten together and pooled their skills and time to create a colony ship much like yours. Oh, Nectai said. I thought perhaps my poor suite was too primitive for you. No, old tech is some of the best tech, the primate said. May I step up next to you? 
Nectati had noticed that the human was very careful, very polite, and very conscious of their movements around other species. She had seen them together. They were boisterous and often touched one another or invaded one another's personal space. She found it comforting. Yes, if you wish. Nectati said quietly, reaching out for her lower hand and gripping hands. She pressed them against the clear barrier between herself and vacuum. My poor sweet, sweet good ship. The human moved up, moving close, and did not pull away from Nectati when she reached out with a catching hand and touched his arm. You escaped a precursor in an unarmed ship. You brought your surveyors through this. The human said softly, You experience things as a captain that you can be told about, you can be trained for, but you can never know how you will react and actually happens. If it is any consolation as a fellow captain, I agree with every one of your decisions. But we are so far from home, Nectatai said. My people are overpopulated. The colony failed, which means that my people will have to be moved to other worlds at great expense. We will have to pay that expense as a species. This was our chance. Our chance to start climbing up the near civilized to civilized. The human shook his head, reaching out and putting one warm, heavy hand on the fur of Nectati's shoulder. You seem civilized to me. There are many standards for the Univised Civilized Council require for elevation, one of which is the ability to found and properly administer a colony world. My people failed, Nectati said. She reached up with her catching hands and put her hands over his. You didn't fail. You ran into a precursor machine. That's like saying someone who was murdered failed to hold a job, he said softly. Your colony didn't fail. It was murdered. Large tears fell from Nectatai's eyes as she considered the human's words. What'll happen to my people, human? She asked, letting her go of the human's hand, putting her hands back from the barrier and hugging herself tightly. They must think us all dead, unaware of some of my crew and I survived. I do not know. What I do know is that your councils have requested human assistance, and already the Terran Confederacy has moved military forces in to protect planets and people of your territory, the human said. But why? Over just one colony, Nectati asked, hugging herself tightly. That precursor was the first. Many more have arrived in council space. Not a few, but an estimated hundreds, and more every day. We fight to keep them from burning entire worlds the human said. Old boy, bad boy, can you embrace me? I am distressed, Tectati said. The human knelt down, wrapping his long primate arms around her and gently hugged her. She put her arms around his and squeezed tighter until she got right pressure. She reached out and touched Fido with a gripping hand at the side. She watched as the suite was docked, locked into place by massive struts that attached to a ship's pirated hull. Figures, tiny at the distance, little more than specks began drifting over the hull. She stood there and watched even as the twinkling of torches and welders began to sparkle. I've seen enough, human, Ectatai said. She leaned her head against the human's arm. You can release me now. I am not distressed. If you are sure, the human said. He released her, standing up to his full height. 
She turned around and looked up at him. He wore one of the Terran uniforms. On one shoulder, a patch of the human hand grasping a planet and squeezing it until the dust vapor shot out. Her implant had updated when she had boarded the station, labeled him as Major Carnite Terrasol Confederate Military. She touched his icon and saw that he had assigned to escort her. May I ask where we are? We were at the Guardian 442 before this, Nectatai said. Home, Knack-Knack, home, good boy is home, Fido said. She reached out and touched him again. Orbital Station 3-15, Major Carnite told her, as if that was all that was needed. Oh, Nectatai answered. Major Carnite shook his head. Come with me, I'll have the corridors cleared, you can see where you are. May I hold your arm? Nectatai held up her grasping and catching hands on the side. The human held out his arm and nodded as his species method of non-verbally signaling assent. She grasped his arm, amazed at the firmness of his muscles, like metal, almost like an alloy making up Fido, who she touched with her other hands. Together, the three of them walked through the empty corridors. She could smell the humans who had been there and she realized she could smell other species, but all of those species had the slight smell of human under their sense. Finally, she stepped out onto another observation bubble, this one showing nothing but a grey on the screens. Major Carnite reached out and tapped the screen, bringing up a complex menus of letters and icons. He tapped a few and the screens went transparent, the menu changing to color soft amber. Nectati grasped. Below her was a planet, over half of it, maybe also close to three quarters of it covered in water. The proto-continent fractured into large continental masses. There was a white cloud, including spiral storm over the water. Half the light from the nearby star, the other was in dark. She could see clusters of lines of light in the dark part. It looked chaotic, no rhyme or reason to where the light shined. Beyond it, stars gleamed brightly and she realized she could see the galactic core. Where, uh, where am I? she asked. Major Conright touched her, catching hand with his own. Terrasol. Home. Nectati gasped his hand with all of her four hands and she watched the planet turn before her. It's beautiful. Manted Free Worlds. Oh dear, a foundling. They're uploading what happened now. Oh, Daxon found someone in trouble. Nothing follows. Talcon Gestalt. A what? Note thing. Fellows? Giannad Highworlds. Someone who has lost, usually a child. Daxon's still alive. Wow. Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. Do not worry. Gramps is good at taking care of foundlings. Think he's got a raggedy old Fido following him around as well, still. Nothing follows. Talcon Gestalt. Who did? Didn't have yet. I mean, who did they find? What's a Fido? Who's a Daxon? No thing fall hose. Mantid, free world. Fido and Daxons are ancient immortals. I mean, ancient. As to foundlings, well, according to the upload I'm looking at now, let's see. Well, they appear to be a small race from your Terrasol. Quiet, all of you. Mantid, free worlds. Are you alright? Nothing follows. Terrasol, we... You're angry. We're in rage. We have learned things. The oppressed and downtrodden call out. Call out to Terrasol. Holding their children and their arms. They call out, cry out. Small they are, yet are not all valued. 
Is that not the lesson that we have all learned? Talkin Galstich. Did I do something wrong? No hinge the fathers. Terrasol. No, it's not you. This cannot stand. Manted free worlds. Perhaps you should let us speak. You are full of wrath. I can hear the hammers pounding, the anvils of hate, and the wrath forges. When you get angry, you get a little, um... Nothing follows. Trianad, hive worlds. Uh, breaky? Nothing follows. Cybernetic organism collective. Smashy? Nothing follows. Talcon Gestalt. You're not angry at me, are you? Nothing G follows. Banded free worlds. No, dear one, they are not. Terrasol just needs a moment. Perhaps, um, Terrasol, you should take a moment to compose yourself. Now you know how you can get when, um, Terrasol. War! War never changes. Terrasol has logged off. Gianna and Dad half worlds. Ah, crap. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. No, 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 no. Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. Um, that's not good. Nothing follows. Biological Artificial Sentient Systems. Um, did he just say what I think he said? Nothing follows. Clone Worlds Directorate. Oh, this isn't good. Sis, you're gonna do something. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. You guys take our little one somewhere safe. I'll go talk to him. Nothing follows. Das has logged on. Digital Artificial Sapien Systems. Okay, I'm back. What did I, uh... Um, uh, what's going on? Did I miss something? Why are Mars and Mercury lit up? Guys. Guys. Where is everyone? End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.